Hey, this is Matt Greenberg, screenwriter of 1408. You are listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies we have a bi-weekly show that's released every other friday this is episode 125 a themed episode that constitutes part two of a two-part series where we browse through the horror films and mini series that have been adapted from the written works of horror author stephen king and in this episode, we will culminate with a couple of very special things. We get a, a feature review of The Dark Tower, a new 2017 film. And we also have an interview, which we'll be telling you about just momentarily. But on this show, we bring you horror movie reviews of new releases with ratings and recommendations that will help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, clean-shaven and podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shark Becker from just outside Philly, PA. And Wolfman, Josh, and Jay. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife anymore. <laughs> that was very sad sounding. Wolfman Josh, would you do me a favor? Just tease a little bit. Tease the listeners about this amazing interview we have at the end of this episode. Yeah, we've got a fun interview coming up with Matt Greenberg. Uh, HMP listeners will know him as one of our jury members on the Horror Cinema Awards back at the beginning of the year. He is the screenwriter of Halloween H2O, and he was a guest on Universal Monsters cast where we talked about his work and adaptation and how that influenced his thoughts about the Universal Monsters dark universe. And so he told us stories about 1408 and about Halloween H2O and about Reign of Fire, all films that he wrote. And um, I thought, you know what? He wrote 1408. We should have him on the Stephen King podcast. So <laughs> I did another little interview with him where he talked about the three Stephen King adaptations that he has written, 1408, Mercy, and a Pet Cemetery remake that never got made. Mm, so okay. it's a fun interview, and I think everyone will enjoy it. Yes, thank you for doing that. That's wonderful. And uh, speaking of Universal Monsters cast, I'm happy to report we have managed to... Uh, scrape together our budget and pay our special guest to return again <laughs> from last week. He's also the host of Retro Movie Geek. Welcome back, Gilman Joel Robertson. Thank you, sir. And scrape is a good choice of words. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, um, I don't know if uh, you and uh, well, of course, you and Dave haven't heard the end of uh, part one. But basically, when you guys left the episode, it kind of deflated like a balloon. So I'm glad that you two are here, at least for a little bit. I would, I honestly was hoping to hear an in-depth analysis of The Mangler. So I'm really hoping you and Josh came through on that one. That's right. Well, we'll see what we could do in post-production, right, Josh? <laughs> so a, qu a quick plug for uh, Movie Podcast Network. We just released our top 10 horror movie posters episode. So 
Jay of the Dead. I did one of those lists. Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead, did a list. And then for all genres, we had lists from Dr. Shock, Wolfman Josh, and William Rowan Jr. of the Sci-Fi Podcast. And so if you're a patron of a movie podcast network that posters episodes over three hours long, and I think you'll dig it. I also did an alternate posters list yes. for those who are into okay. the kind of Mondo alternative posters. Yes, that was excellent. I, that was one of my favorite shows. I loved it. So anyway, on the business, because we only have Joel for so long tonight, but this is our Stephen King part two episode where we're covering from 1997 to 2017. As I said, it's uh, part two of a two-part series. So if you missed the first half, you can go back and listen to episode 124. And of course, you can always find that at horrormoviepodcast.com, even if you're listening to this 10 years from now. <laughs> so what we're going to do is peruse the horror films and miniseries that are adapted from Stephen King. And as with our previous episode, we're going to bring you this time five feature reviews of Stephen King adaptations including The Dark Tower. So anyways, I think that's all we want to say. And let's jump in right now to our feature review of The Night Flyer. One, zero, one, Bravo, Lima. Come in, over. One, zero, one, Bravo, Lima. I can't have you sitting in the middle of my runway, horse. Respond, over. This is Buck Kendall trying you again. One, zero, one, Bravo, Lima. You got to move it. I mean, now, not later. Why do all the weird ones have to fly at night? All right. So the Night Flyer is from 1997. And I know Josh Wolfman is a little upset with me because (laughs) I wanted to review this one. And according to him, it's one of his favorites. So let's see how this all shakes out (laughs) before before I'm done. So it, it came out in 97. Uh, it is the story of Richard Dees, played by Miguel Ferrer, a man who was born to play skeezy, jerky D-bags. I mean, I don't know anybody that he's he's in the top tier. I mean, he is yeah, in the top him tier. and James Woods, basically. Are yes. Fighting yes. It out. Just just really great at, at those kind of roles. So he oh. plays this guy. He's a he's a photojournalist. And I use that title very loosely for a disreputable tabloid called Inside View. And think of National Enquirer, but way, way skeezier and sleazier. And that's gives you an idea what kind of magazine this is. It's the recurring tabloid in all of King's works. Yes. yes. And in fact, I believe the character Richard Dees makes an appearance in the dead zone, the book. Mm. Yep. Uh, Mm. Apparently he uh, is in trying to interview uh, the, the main character for his tabloid. So it's basically the story of Richard who is, you know, wanting to get, get a better shakeout for, for stories. He's, he was sort of their top headlining guy and he, and he's, you know, kind of fallen to the side a little bit. And, and meanwhile, his, uh, his, uh, editor tells him that they're going to be, get, you know, they've got this new reporter in. And of course he's, threatened not just because it's somebody new but it's also a woman and shock of all shocks richard Dees is also a bit of a sexist uh, misogynist so i mean that's shocking to learn as well so he wants to you know there's this opportunity for a story he turns it down at first and and the story is that there is a psycho for lack of a better word going into these tiny regional airports and murdering people and that's the psycho supposedly believes himself to be a vampire <laughs> And Richard believes that it's a bunch of crap, of course, because, you know, 99.9% of everything he writes about in the, for this magazine is crap. Uh, but due to some cajoling and some things that happen, he he agrees to take the story. And that's 
basically the movie is that it's him following the trail of this killer possible vampire character. Now, I saw this when it came out. I actually remembered, I, I feel like a lot of these movies, especially from this era era and earlier, I always say, I read about them in Fango first, and I did. I believe I read about it in Fangoria, and I seem to recall, and, and some of the research I did back this up, that I saw it on HBO or something like that first, because I don't think it went to the theaters very long, and if it did, I think this is sort of a weird, this is an early video on demand situation, which even though it wasn't on demand, in that it came out to TV and then went to theaters briefly, I think was how it played. It was something weird like that. And it didn't do great at the box office, as I recall, but I remember at the time really liking it, thinking it was, you know, yes, it was low budget, but it was really well made, really well put together. And I remember thinking some things I'd read interviews with the director, uh, Mark Pavia, that, you know, he seemed like an interesting guy who really loved horror and really loved King's work. And I just thought he did a really great job with it. And even though I've not read the short story that it's based on, Reading the synopsis of the short story, this may be one of the most faithful adaptations to a short story mm. of any of the movies that we've discussed wow. thus far. But where, but where it it goes beyond that is it adds in this extra plot or subplot of the new reporter that comes in as competition for Richard Dees. So, in in fact, in my opinion, the thing that it adds to the story enhances the story because it does give Richard Dees one more thing to sort of battle against and have to deal with. Now, the other thing about this movie, and I'm just going to lay my cards out, and Josh, you have nothing to worry about because I love this movie. I, I I forgot how much I love this movie until rewatching this movie. I, I came away from it going, A, how is this Mark Pavia's first film? Because it <laughs> feels really... And you guys know this, right? You see a movie that's it's you know an independent film, and there's always something just off. No, I mean not always, but especially a first film. There's just there's a lot of times with with a fictional narrative film, low budget. It's either the acting or the script, the beats, the the rhythm of the editing. There's just always something that's just off. I swear, there's nothing off in this movie. And and unfortunately, the only version I had to watch was a crappy YouTube version, and it still was very engaging and it's a tight 90 minutes. Um, and the thing that, that really sells it for me and I want to take our own Jay of the dead to task just for a moment. Cause I don't know if I've ever gotten to do this publicly Jay. Oh, great. Love it. You, you, you well, you love to say mm-hmm. horror happens to those who deserve it at least. And I agree with you, right? I, mm-hmm. in principle, in principle, yes, it does. Now, if you look at most slasher films, 90% of the characters in it deserve what they're getting, or at least, you know, in theory, because they're annoying usually. Right. Except for the final girl. She totally fits your model. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's characters in, in tons of movies that totally fit what you're saying. Reagan doesn't deserve what happens to her. We get it. But there's this other vein of horror that I am a personal fan of <laughs> called The Douchebag Gets His Comeuppance. It's the Tales from the Crypt, <laughs> East the Comics. It is. They are people who deserve it so much. You mm-hmm. can't wait for them to get it. And that is Richard D's. And that is this story. This to me, I remember liking demon Knight, but this is what this should have been. The first tales from the crypt movie <laughs> entry, because it is, it feels like a tales from the crypt episode at times. Mm. And I mean that in the best possible way. And, and they do, they are so unapologetic about how much of a complete ass clown D's is. <laughs> And yet, because Miguel Ferrer plays him so well, you still find him riveting and interesting. I mean, there's plenty of things where the character is unlikable and thus unwatchable. In this case, he's not. You know, he's a horrible person, but yet 
you still fight. It's sort of a a, a weird, in, in its own way, Frank Underwood kind of thing from House of Cards. Like, the guy's horrible, but yet he's riveting. The practical effects were K&B. So Kurtzman, Nicotero, Burger, everybody knows, knows of them. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's all practical effects. It's great. The gore effects are really well done. Um, I, I mean, I just, I feel like there's so many different things I want to talk about about this movie. I'm, I, let me put it this way. I enjoyed the graveyard shift for what it was. And I, but I totally admit that that was probably some cinematic nostalgia disorder kicking in. Night Flyer is not, it's actually a good movie. It, it, you know, it's not perfect. You know, there, there are, even though it's only 90 minutes long, I suppose there's a few points when, you know, when he's on his, his journey to find, uh, the the vampire character that it may have a little bit of a drag to it, but honestly, it's not. It's negligible. I, I never found like I was bored or anything like that. Right. Um, it it it. Um, other thing it did really well was that I, I liked. And are we trying to avoid spoilers in these reviews? Are we? Are we? Because I know we're going in depth in some of the other movies, or at least to some degree. Yeah, and as much as it's possible. But if there's a, if there's a point you want to talk about, just give a spoiler okay. warning and go into. Okay, it. sure. I, I don't necessarily know that this is a spoiler because they say it in the in the opening scenes of the movie. Mm. But one of the things I really appreciated that it just jumped out at me this time is that everybody knows up front that there's some psycho going around killing people and that he very well you know could be a vampire like they don't so many movies i feel make this fatal flaw of trying to have it where the killer you know is on the loose and yet nobody noticed all these people dying at these airports and like it's not a little weird to everybody like you always have that moment where you're like is anybody going to ask the question what the hell is going on here but yet, but this movie up front, they're like, yeah, there's a psycho going around. We want you to figure out who he is. And, you know, see, hey, maybe he is a vampire. Who knows? You know, we're, I, I just, I liked that up front, they, it's, it, all the cards are laid out on the table. There's no question about it. Something is going on, something weird. And they even address the fact that, well, why hasn't the national media picked this up? And it's because it's these small regional little airports and they, and they acknowledge that there's a bit of a time element to this, that if they don't move quick, they're going to get, it's going to get picked up and then they're going to lose their opportunity to sell newspapers so i just like that it had that uh, it even has really good king dialogue which i almost again want to find the short story because i'm sure it had to be pulled out of it wholesale in some cases there's a character that is describing uh the vampire's cloak and i probably should tell you that vampire they say up front his name is dwight renfield so and and they even break it down it's like you know he was dwight fry played renfield and they were dressed, i mean it they don't even like pretend like, oh, no, it's good. Will people get the inside joke? No, they're like, here, here it is. This <laughs> is what it's about. <laughs> this is yeah. what it is, man. Whole cards on the table. But one of the characters <laughs> referring to the cloak and seeing it in the dark said, it was red as a fire engine inside and black as a woodchuck's <laughs> outside. And for some reason, <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> it just screamed king to me. So, it, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 yeah. it has, uh, there's a bunch, there's a scene where uh, the, 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 uh, the, female reporter who is played by Julie Entwistle. Uh, Catherine Blair is the character's name. Mm-hmm. She's looking at the covers of a bunch of different inside view yes. uh, ma- <laughs> magazine newspapers. And if you pay attention now, the only one I caught at the time was Spring Hill Jack and right. Spring Hill Jack is in a story that King wrote called strawberry spring. And that actually that character is an old legend from way back when, but, but I uh, found out in the trivia, have you read of this Josh uh, about all what all the different, uh, yeah, they're they're all of them are or many of them are yeah. references okay, to yes. 
Stephen King stories. Yeah, There's yeah. The, the, the title, yeah, this, it was Spring Hill Jack Strikes Again. That was a stra- Strawberry Spring reference. Headless Lamaze Leads to Successful Birth. That's from The Breathing Method. Kitty cultists in Kansas worship creepy voodoo god. I bet you guess what that is. Yeah. Uh, a satanic shopkeeper sells gory goodies. So we get yep. the needful things reference. Naked naked demons leveled my lawn. The lawnmower man. Uh, the, oh, this one I love. You'll appreciate this, guys. Especially with, with Jay's review last time. The ultimate killer diet. Gypsy curse flays fat lawyer's flesh. <laughs> <laughs> so they have all these references. And then... They, uh, I think this is one that was not in the story, but early on, Dees goes to talk to somebody who works at the airport of the first victim, and he, uh, they talk about how Dwight Renfield flew in from Derry, so they yes. immediately connect him to the town from it, and it just, I, I love it that they had all that. It's like that they went the extra mile to have those little moments. Uh, like I said, the practical effects were just top notch. I'm going through my notes here trying to make sure I don't miss anything. Oh, and then there was these little things. I I think it's probably a stretch to say, and this is a mild spoiler alert, okay? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's a severe spoiler alert now that I'm saying it. So if you haven't seen Night Flyer, fast forward 30 seconds. The the ending of the movie and and where it goes with Richard D's character and what he ends up doing as far as um, – Potentially being a killer, let's just say. Um, not necessarily, but potentially. And if you need to edit that or beat me, just do it, Jay. <laughs> um, no, no problem. But, but they, you know, it's, it's left as if it was a manipulation by the vampire. But throughout the movie, and again, never noticed this before, there are several moments where you see his image and it's always fractured. It's in a broken mirror or window. It's in, you know, there's some, like pieces of metal or something at, at weird angles. So it's kind of got his image in it, but it's all in, it's broken up. So, you know, you have that. And then there's a moment mm. when he's talking to the report, the other reporter, the Julie Inpussel's character. And he, right before he's about to tell her about the real story of Inside View and what happened to quote unquote Dottie, the woman she replaced, <laughs> He and the shadow passes over his face, literally like a shadow. And then he continues his story. And it's just these little moments that make you go, could hmm. it be that, I mean, this was all in his pay. I mean, I, it, it probably isn't right. I mean, it, he, he, you know, we see the vampire kill people where he's not there, but the only, you almost could read it as, you know, and, and he has a connection to the vampire, but just the fact that he is so fractured and he is so, uh, disjointed. I think with just a little bit of tweaking, you almost could make it be uh, more of a, almost a psychological horror where it, was it him? You know, was he the guy that actually was doing all this stuff and just the guy, cause he flies a plane. He does, he, he does all the things that the vampire can do. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, just, I liked, I liked the fact though, that there was these little elements that were just sort of just there under the surface that if you're not even looking for them, you wouldn't see. So um, that's pretty much it. As far as the big stuff, I, I do like that when, they reveal the vampire. Now, my memory of it was that it was grotesque, but kind of goofy looking. I actually, and, and I don't know, maybe it was the quality of the YouTube video helped uh, hide any flaws, but <laughs> it actually worked a lot better for me this time. Hmm. I mean, I think for me, the that element and also a lot of the elements of this film are that it benefits from being seen as almost a retro movie. You know, I think at the time when it came out, you know, this is like 97, 98, it to me felt like an 80s movie 
you know, mm-hmm. and so yes. and so it does feel a little bit out of its time. Like a lot of Stephen King adaptations, it kind of feels like a made-for-TV movie. And I think maybe this wasn't originally made by HBO, but you know, it it has kind of the that feeling of a of a television film, like a lot of the King adaptations do, or just I don't know, kind of out of time mm-hmm. um, compared to what we were used to in cinema at that time, um, kind of a mainstream cinema. So um, for me, like. I appreciate it a lot more now looking back than I did when it came out. No, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because think about it, 97, that's the same year Lost World came out, right? <laughs> so <laughs> yes. we're, we're, we're in a world where CGI is digging its claws in heavily and, and, and in some cases effectively. And so it is definitely a different mindset about the movie. And I think you're right. I think even at that point, for somebody like me, as much as I love practical effects, I think maybe looking back on it, I was maybe wearing a little thin on some movies of that type and then going back to them now with all the perspective and life lived that I don't know, I just, it felt fresher to me and it just felt better. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point about the TV quality, I think again, that is why it also had that tales from the crypt vibe. It yeah. felt like an episode at times, even visual, just the aesthetic of it, of like a tales from the crypt. Yeah. But the atmosphere was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it was effective. I, I, again, I just can't get over just what a complete, just uh, chuck wagon <laughs> head rick rick Deezus, because well, i mean just i mean just because just because i mean the guy this is a guy this is a guy just let me say this this is a guy who will go to a fresh grave of a victim of a serial killer and just because the shot isn't scary enough because it looks too clean will take the the, the fresh flowers toss them to the side take dead flowers from another grave put them on it kick the headstone so it's at an angle and then cut his own finger with a pocket knife so he could smear blood across the face of the headstone. That's who this guy is. Mm. And so <laughs> he's, just, he's just, he's unrepentant in his douchebaggery. It is, it is really something. So you kind of love to hate him and, but it's weird even in the end because you made the comment, Jay, that to you Salem's Lot is probably one of the scariest mm-hmm. vampire films. Yeah, and I and I do agree for a lot of you know, all of the creepy elements of it. That this one, though, especially the ending, it is pretty creepy. Um, now, this is going to be a major spoiler, so again, cut me, beat me, or if anybody's listening, if you want to fast forward like thirty seconds to a minute because you want to revisit it. But you know, he's surrounded by theoretically all these undead. You know. Assume it's all in his head, but he's surrounded by them. He's got an axe, and one of them is a woman, and she holds up a limp, dead baby. And I actually wrote, and by the way, the whole time, all she, he's, as he's being surrounded by these, they're undead, but this, they're like the, their their eyes are wearing these white contacts, and they have sort of these demonic-looking fangs, and, and they're just moving at him extremely slow. And she says to him, as she's holding up the baby, like a as if it's a sacrifice. She says, Richard. Do you know what I had to do to get this? Pull it out of me. It's so cold. It's like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and all you're hearing is wailing and just crying and just this. But it's very like it's not extreme. It's not screaming and loud and it's just creepy as hell. So I give the Night Flyer a solid 8.5. I say buy it if you can. Good luck on that one. I to be fair, I haven't checked. I don't know if any of you guys own it or I, I want to say I saw it on DVD somewhere, but yeah, it's it on Amazon, but it's expensive. I bought it, you know, a few years ago, but it was like more expensive than it should have been. I just looked it up. It was holy it's 50, crap. It's fifty eight dollars. Yep. There it is. He's right. Just looked it up. Yep. <laughs> wow. 
Okay. And now I, I loved it. I think I it was like 30 I... when I bought it, but you can buy, you can get it used. I'm just, just looking in there now. You can get it used for 14. So yeah. And I would yeah. say 14, 25 would be worth it. I loved it. I didn't love it. $58 worth. So <laughs> just, I just, now what I really want, because I'm assuming in the, this DVD is just the movie and maybe a trailer. I don't know, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. Do they get director's commentary? Or... I didn't have, if I didn't have a chance to rewatch it, so I can go, I'm going to check really quick. Yeah, I just, I'm just i curious to know, because you know, just looking through the stats and the specs, it, it's just like behind-the-scenes material. That's all it says. So I would love to get director's commentary. I feel like this is the kind of movie that I would love for, you know, uh, Shaw Factory or Arrow or somebody to take and just really do a really nice Blu-ray and do like mm. really just great behind-the-scenes stuff with the director. Because here's the thing about Mark Pavia, and I just wanted to get into this for a second – Dude disappeared. <laughs> and I remember mm. at the time thinking that this guy's got a real future. And I remember in the interview, he talked about he was some other Stephen King properties that you know he was interested in developing. And and he did not. For the longest time, I would check his IMDb, IMDb page. And other than a short film he did a few years before Night Flyer, Night Flyer is his only credit. And it was that way up until 2016. And he apparently directed a movie called Fender Bender, which I don't know if you guys have seen yet, in 2016. I know uh, some of our listeners liked that one. Uh, uh-huh. That came up on people's lists. Did, I don't know if any of us saw it. But it I sounds didn't. interesting. Nope. Yeah, the, the, here's, here's the summary real quick. In a small New Mexico town, a 17-year-old high school girl who just got her driver's license gets into her first Fender Bender, innocently exchanging her personal information with an apologetic stranger. Later that stormy night, she is joined in her desolate suburban home by a couple of her school friends who try their best to make a night out of it, only to be visited by the stranger she so willingly handed all of her information to, a terrifying and bizarre serial killer who stalks the country's endless miles of roads and streets with his old rusty car, hungrily searching for his next unsuspecting victim. <laughs> Hell yes. So uh, yeah, Ian so. West, our good friend Ian West, at HP Make Lovecraft on Twitter, he gave it a 6 out of 10. Mark, Dark Mark gave it a four out of ten, and Jody Horror Guy gave it a six out of ten. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I mean, it sounds good. <laughs> it sounds interesting to me, and I, I didn't have a chance to watch the uh, the whole trailer. I, fa- I found it. I started watching it, and then, you know, with kids in life, you get distracted 30 seconds into a trailer, like, damn it. But even just in the trailer, <laughs> from what I could tell, is, again, something about this guy, his touch with films, even very low budget, things like this. And I don't know if it's just his way with actors or, or if it's his editing prowess. I don't know what it is. It just feels like you're in the hands of somebody who is a lot more sure-footed than a person who's only made one or two movies. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, there are plenty of people who, I mean, you go look at duel, right? I mean, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people who their first movie out the gate was a home <laughs> run. I get that, but right. I mean, a long time ago, many, many moons ago, I wrote for an online magazine called Microfilmmaker. So I had my fair share of looking at microfilmmaker level movies. And, you know, some were far better than others. And and at the end of the day, I always feel like people put themselves out there and made something go, you know, go them. You know, they, they should have all of our support. But there's a there's a, just this little sometimes it's just something you can't quite put your finger on. You know what I mean? It's just it feels not quite as polished. And, you know, it doesn't feel quite as hmm, you know, just right as a, as a movie who's it's in the hands of somebody who really is a master of what they're doing. And for Mark Pavia's first freaking movie, man, I just, like I said, it's not perfect, but it, it definitely is an effective little horror flick. And, and in my opinion, one of the better vampire movies, I mean, I put it right up there with near dark and 30 days a night, all the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a top notch vampire flick. Nice. So night flyer, 
Wow. Okay. I, I love it. I would I would not be as high on my praise as you were, but I, I have not revisited it. So that's that's uh, not a point my favorite. It's at but. least been fifteen years since I've seen it. At least. I would put it a notch lower than than you did, uh probably like the second tier of vampire movies. I do like it a lot. I mean it's um I probably would have given it a seven point five, but I would I would say buy it. But again, it's it's a hefty price to pay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's a great film. And if anybody out there wants the fourteen twenty five, you're well, Jay, you can add this. You're shit out of luck. I just picked that one up. <laughs> so I think that, I think I think after that, it's like eighteen or nineteen dollars. I'm look. I'm looking. Mm. Damn you, Dave Becker. I mean, everybody's <laughs> mad at Dave right now. It's mm. awesome. It's hilarious. You guys sold me on that. I, I'm ex- I'm excited actually. I'm, Have you never seen it? No, I haven't. And you said there's a there's a YouTube version um, that you uh, yeah can, it's on YouTube. Pr- I, I, yeah, it's not the best, but yeah, right. I found it on YouTube. Yeah, some. I mean, I know that's not ideal, but sometimes I can live with it. So well, and you don't have much of an option unless you want to spend twenty bucks on the DVD for something you've never seen before. <laughs> because I mean, for uh, me, if it, if it's out of print, that's a that's a. Sure. A gimme for me. I'm, sure. I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Well, thank you, Joel. So you said your rating was one more time. Eight point five. Mm-hmm. And you tell and people. I'd say to... buy it if you can get it. Okay. I would say do not buy it for sixty bucks. All right. Buy it. For, you know, tw- twenty is fair, especially if you're if you haven't seen it in a while, but you remember liking it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. when you revisit it. And Wolfman, did you did you have an idea what your rating range was on this? I said seven point five and buy it. Okay, thank you. Just one minute. And see, the thing is, it, and I haven't given in a way the the full ending. Jason said, "Didn't realize you hadn't seen it, or I definitely would have given half of the stuff." Oh, anyway. that's okay. But, but that being said, I think knowing your your your, I wouldn't say love. That might be a bit extreme, but your interest in darker endings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I think you'll probably be. Pleasantly surprised. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, D- Dave, have you seen the Night Flyer? No, no, I have not. But oh. I'm really, really sold on it now, and mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. <laughs> yeah, 97 and 98 are kind of a blind spot in my life, so I wasn't. Yeah, I was thinking. I was. <laughs> oh, you should do it as one thing, of your movies. Yeah. I know, right? I know. You should do it as your 97. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, it's the same with me. This is around the time when my kids were were born and very young. Um, mm-hmm. and also, uh, there was a four year span there where I was, uh, very heavily into, uh, genealogy and doing genealogical research and traveling for that and so forth. So <laughs> yeah, that, and that's right around the late, the late nineties, right into about 2000 or so. So mm-hmm. yeah. I have a lot of, I'm looking at the list of like Stephen King movies. I'm like, no, I didn't see that. Didn't see that. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's excellent. Well, thanks, Joel, for covering the Night Flyer. It was good to hear from you and Josh on that one. You're welcome. Okay, so next in 1997, we have The Shining miniseries, which is the second adaptation of this novel. Now, this is the one with Rebecca De Mornay. Any comments about this one, guys? I like it. I mean, I don't think it's as good as Kubrick's film, but I, when you see how different it is, you know, and this is more closely fitting what Stephen King would have liked to see. You can see why he was disappointed in Kubrick's version because they are quite different yet. They, I think there are a couple scenes that I really enjoy. Like it doesn't have, it has the, um, it has the bush animals. I don't know how you would say that. <laughs> the lawn animals from the book. Right. <laughs> yeah. and right. I really enjoy 
the way those are used. I think it's really freaky. Now, mind you, I haven't seen this since it was on television. So I watched this when it was on TV and I've not revisited it, but I loved it when I watched it. So, um, you know, but in my opinion, sorry to Mr. King, I don't think it holds a candle to Kubrick's obviously. So, right. Yeah. And, and the fact that Stephen King appreciates it, I, I think says something, but we have to well, make up our own minds. It, I believe. I think he produced it and, and, you know, and made sure it was what he wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I just think there's something about his sensibility. I'm, I really believe after talking about these films and looking at some of them more closely, there's something about his sensibility of adaptation from, from the written word to, you know, the motion picture medium that, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just think he's, in the caught in the twilight zone days or back in the tv serials days really i mean that's just how i feel but i mean i think yeah i mean i think i'm sure when you've created something that epic it's hard to see it change so much and i think he had bad personal experiences with kubrick which i'm sure color his feelings about it too but (laughs) i think most people did right i mean yeah it goes very particular and kind of difficult to get along (laughs) with because he had such a vision right but yeah i know stephen king really didn't want him to cast jack nicholson that was part of it i one of the things i've heard king say is that he feels like the film is really cold and he says that his film has warmth to it and um the kubrick's film is really cold and i I agree with King that there is a certain warmth to a lot of his novels, you know, and Mm -hmm. sometimes even if it's really scary, it being kind of the prime example for me, it has this or stand by me, you know, that there's such a warmth to some of his work, but I have to admit some of my favorite film adaptations are the ones that don't contain that. Like Mm -hmm. Salem's lot is just ice cold you know and right uh, right the shining yeah as well so that's a great that's a great way to describe that the whole warmth thing because yeah it's like it means tv movie to me basically and in a way And, and speaking of tv movies uh in 1997 you had a tv movie called trucks right i i didn't see that did you guys see that one no nope based on a stephen king short story and it, it it sounds like it's basically the the premise for Maximum Overdrive, right? Tells the story of trucks suddenly coming to life and attacking their owners. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like it. Yep. All right. Also in '97, uh, Quicksilver Highway. It's like two short films, um, and one of them was based on a short story, Chattery Teeth. I never read that. The other one's a short story by Clive Barker. So continuing on, um, Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry to all the Children of the Corn fans out there. I just have, I have nothing to contribute. (laughs) Even though I like the the first few of these movies, I I have no memory or I don't even know that I've seen all of them. I'm sure I haven't. So. I feel like I missed Children of the Corn 4. Did we talk about that last time? <laughs> yes, we, we did at the very end when you and I were like falling uh, asleep. Yeah. Basically. I mean, this is my example of we can't really call these Stephen King adaptations because a lot of these, mm-hmm. some of them King wrote the original screenplay, but others like these, they're actually just completely invented sequels to right. who knows what version of the children of the corn franchise, you know? Exactly. I agree with you hundred percent. And this one is a sequel specifically to the 1996 film. 
And yeah, so you get like copies of a copy of a copy. <laughs> the 1996 film is three. Is that correct? Oh, no, this would I guess that would have been four. Yeah, it was number four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we should mention here in 98, um, not a horror movie, but it's a disturbing crime drama thriller, Apt Pupil, based on Stephen King's mm-hmm. novella. So that's Brian Singer's sophomore slump, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could call it that. That's a risky material to anyways um 1998 sometimes they come back for more <laughs> oh boy i didn't see it you guys <laughs> no okay all right keep moving and here we are josh this is one of our favorite things in the world this is like <laughs> ch- this is like chocolate milkshakes and rollos and all, all other good things storm wow. of the century miniseries okay. Now we're talking. From 1999. Joshua and I love this. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh, this is going to sound creepy, but we should get snowed in together in a cabin <laughs> up at Sundance and watch this and be scared. Right. You're on. <laughs> we talked about doing kind of a, a snowed in episode this winter, and it might be fun. We should. We really should. We should go and uh, too bad we can't get Dave back. Dave, can you just stay out here after the meetup and <laughs> live out here? Yeah, right. Winter? Okay. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, that's amazing, and yeah, in case in case we haven't mentioned it officially yet, D- Dave Becker, Doctor Shock will be at the Movie Podcast Network meetup October fourteenth, twenty seventeen. And then living with us until winter. That's right. <laughs> Snowfall. <laughs> that's right. We'll keep him in our basement. But uh, Storm of the <laughs> Storm of the Century delivers the goods, and I I mean that like it, it has that same you know. TV feeling, but Josh, the reason I love this so much is because as you go through it, it surprises you, and it's very dark, it's very entertaining, and if there's a blizzard, I'm telling you people, if you if there's ever a blizzard or you get snowed in, there's tons of snow, you gotta watch this. It's four hours, 17 minutes. It's a blast. So It's a lot of fun. Great winter watch. Absolutely. Okay, also in 1999, we have The Rage carry two black yeah that was the worst wasn't it <laughs> i never saw it to be oh honest. man I, I didn't either oh yeah it was I, that, bad, huh? I watched it during my video store days I, I worked at a video rental store from i think 2000 2000 i guess it wasn't until 2002 but anyway this is one of those that i checked out because we, we could get up to like 10 rentals at a time so i would just go through and you grab a bunch of movies and uh that was one of them i watched during one of my binges and i was sorely disappointed well as reading the premise on imdb i mean it sounds like it's just a rip off of the first movie and it's like we saw it done in the first movie and it was great so why do also we need just, to do it again it's it's like the early 2000s it feels more like 90s teeny bopper version which don't need at all so yikes yeah, yeah we don't need that um, speaking of things that we don't necessarily need, 1999, Children of the Corn, 666, Isaac's Return. <laughs> so there's that. That's I a, have to commend them on the title. Wow. That's terrible That's title. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Isaac's Return. It, it, it cumbersome, to be sure. Okay. I wonder, I wonder, if, I wonder if, when, if when Stephen King wrote this, he realized that there was six movies worth of... <laughs> They would get six movies worth of material out of Children of the Corn. Well, I think they're up to, what is it, nine now? Did we talk nine about Nine now, that? yeah. It's crazy, uh, yeah. the number. but um, It's like the first time I saw Police Academy, I didn't say, boy, I could watch another eight hours of that. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. But but Citizens on Patrol, I'm glad we ended up getting that movie. Just saying. That's my favorite. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay. So that was Police Academy. Anyways, uh, this is not horror. But again, as we have been doing, we got to recommend certain things. And I got to recommend The Green Mile from 1999. I think it's borderline enough. It takes place in kind of a horror fantasy realm in my opinion it's not straight horror for sure but i i wouldn't put this in the same bucket as maybe the next film we're going to talk about or some of these others that we've said are definitely not horror that's that's Uh true yeah and the next one just real quick my favorite memory the reason i love the green miles because on one of my birthdays i went to dairy queen and i purchased all these royal treats which are the best dairy queen treats like peanut butter parfait i put them in a cooler and took them back to the apartment and and watch the Green Mile while I ate like six different Dairy Queen treats. <laughs> Anyways, that's the I end. I saw of- <laughs> a uh, I saw a TMZ interview with Stephen King when I was doing research for this episode. Mm-hmm. They had stopped him on the street and they asked him, "Who's your favorite actor that's been in one of your film adaptations?" And he said, "Michael Clark Duncan, yep. Green Mile." Yeah, absolutely. And and I couldn't believe. It, like I couldn't believe that he passed away and I didn't even realize he had died. And when I found out, I was shocked. That's a couple crazy. years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, oh man, I think was he was having health problems all the way back in daredevil though. So I mean, yes. he's wow. a big dude. I think it was hard on his body. Yeah. 2012 was when he died. Okay. Okay. And then, yeah, Josh was referring probably in passing to um, hearts in Atlantis, not horror whatsoever. Right. <laughs> like, so yes, but Anthony Hopkins plays in that. So true. I remember, I just remember so strongly the trailers for that in 2001. I remember that a ton. Anyways, uh, also in 2001, children of the corn revelation. <laughs> so, Sweet. <laughs> okay. No comment. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. 2002, The Mangler 2. Oh, man. We needed Joel on here for that one. I know. I know. <laughs> Joel's into these Mangler films. So, yeah, that was a straight to video release. And um, I'm sure it was great. <laughs> and then we got a 2002 miniseries called Rose Red. I almost chose that for my feature review because I had not seen it and I've been curious about it. I like it. It's good. It's people in a haunted house, right? Like they have psychic powers. Yeah, it, it was a miniseries. It was good. I It was it was another one of those uh, things when I worked at the video store that I just uh, picked up and and uh, devoured. But I mean, you know, it's it is a TV miniseries vibe, but it has Nancy Travis, so for me that's enough. Um, mm-hmm. I like anything she's in, and it's a it's a nice haunted house story. It's uh, that's always fun. It's got the the psychic powers thing going on that a lot of Stephen King movies do. So I think people would enjoy that one. Yep. It's been a few years. I saw it. I was probably around 2003 that I saw it. But it's four hours. That's one I. I'd pick it up, actually. If I saw it, I would buy it. And I feel like this seems like the kind of movie you'd find in a bargain bin or like at a gas station. I feel like you see this around sometimes. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah, four hours, 14 minutes. So you get your money's worth on that one. <laughs> okay. And then um, in 2002, I, I honestly don't even remember this coming out. There's a Carrie adaptation um, in 2002. That, no. that that's what it has I, but i i on i can't even find it on imdb so i don't even know what it's talking about <laughs> I, I remember that one that was that uh that was a blockbuster one as well um 
I absolutely remember that. If you if you see the cover, you'll remember seeing it at the video store. Okay, but I don't I don't remember if I watched it. To be hold on, who was the actress in it? Yeah, I saw that. I actually did see that. Yeah, it was fine. It's the girl from May is the main actress, I think. Oh, uh, Angela Bettis. Is I that think her, so. Is that her name? Um, and we see. Her. Yeah, it was it was a TV. Yeah, movie. I see it here. I see okay. it here. It's a TV movie. Angela Bettis, Patricia yeah. Clarkson. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was pretty good. I, I remember it being fine. I mean, it wasn't like groundbreaking. I mean, it wasn't mind blowing or anything. I, I think it was as easily as good as a later Carrie adaptation where I talk about though. Yeah, television movie uh, that was directed by David Carson. Okay, I would say Angela Bettis's performance was better than Chloe Grace Moretz. Interesting. If I had to pick one. Okay, well that's a little. But the rest of the the rest of the newer movie probably had some better elements. But yeah, I don't remember a lot about this. But. Hmm. Okay, gotcha. So that's the Carrie uh, second adaptation. It did exist. <laughs> yes, yes, it did. All right, and then in uh, 2002, we had Firestarter Rekindled. <laughs> that title's kind of funny, right? I remember that one, too. Man, I got, these are all, that, that's, you know, it was a rough time to be working at a video store, but yeah, I remember, the, I totally remember seeing this. I can't remember anything about it. I rented it, though. I think I felt like it was similar to The Rage 2. It was just like... <laughs> You know, like MTV version of, you know, a Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> I, I see here that it's almost uh, three hours long and it's a yeah TV movie. Okay. Interesting. All right. So there's that one. And now we move into, um, they actually had a, a prequel to Rose Red. It's from 2003. It's called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. I don't know that one either. I have not seen that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, you you've still been doing a pretty impressive job there, Josh. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of these. Uh, Two thousand three, we have Dreamcatcher, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I was so excited when this one was going to come out because I'm a major fan of Jason Lee. Like he was like one of my absolute favorite actors. At that point, he hadn't done all of the like terrible children's squeakles and things that he's done now but he's he was such a cool actor in my opinion a little bit let down by that film i have to say but um it's it does some cool things occasionally it's got it's got its moments but it's not one of my favorite king adaptations it's so surprising because it's directed by lawrence kasdan of uh star wars fame and um Mm -hmm. William Goldman uh, did the screenplay and it's got Morgan Freeman, Thomas Jane. Uh, so it's surprising. And the premise is uh, friends on a camping trip discover that the town they're vacationing in is being plagued in an unusual fashion by parasitic aliens. Not just those guys, Jason Lee. Damian Lewis is kind of the main character. If there, if there was one, uh, Timothy Oliphant's in it, Tom Sizemore, Donnie Wahlberg. I mean, it's a pretty solid cast. Mm hmm. And I love the look of the poster. I remember just being awesome. And I love the winter setting, of course. It's about a bunch of guys that go to this cabin together. And man, you just think it would be a lot better than it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird when that happens. It's pretty visually stimulating. Like there's a cool, um, I'll call it a vault, I guess, featured in the film. I think that's really amazing looking and well done. But yeah. Okay. All right, gotcha. Thank you. And what about the uh, 2004 <laughs> Rob Lowe version of Salem's Lot, the miniseries? <laughs> so I have heard good things about this, actually. I have not seen it, or I don't remember seeing it, but I've heard good things about it. D- 
Dave, very, what about you? Very recently. I have not, I have not seen Return to Salem's Lot. Well, this is just Salem's Lot, actually. It's not it's Oh, not that's Return. right. That's not the Return. I have not seen the remake, I should say, of Salem's Lot. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but it's like three hours. It's a TV series. Okay. Actually, Matt Greenberg, who we are interviewing later, said that he preferred this to the original Salem's oh. Lot. Mm, he okay. preferred Rob Lowe's performance. He felt like he got the character better. Wow, okay. Well, then I should definitely check that out. All right, well, then at this point, uh, let's move into uh, Wolfman Josh's feature review of Secret Window. The only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story. And this one is very good. This one is perfect. For Mort Rainey, every story is a window into another world. But some windows should never be opened. You stole my story. Secret Window is a 2004 film. It's written and directed by David Kep, based on the Stephen King novel. It's actually a short story. It's 135 pages. And so I think it's actually uh, one of the easier to adapt. I remember David Kep talking about how this was easier to adapt than a lot of book adaptations because it's about the length of a screenplay. And that's an interesting point, especially for someone like King who tends to write long, you know, it's, it's something that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense why his short stories have been adapted so much. So this story is about a writer surprise. The writer is played by Johnny Depp. His name is Mort Rainey and he has a knock on his door one day by a guy, kind of an intimidating dude played by John Turturro named John Shooter and Shooter stands there looking kind of menacing and says, you stole my story. Yeah, you stole my story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. And, I like uh, saying that too. And don't then, say it. And then, and then when the straight, to- when the straight story came out, I was like, you stole my straight story, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, like one of the others that we just talked about Dreamcatcher, this has an incredible cast, Johnny Depp, John Turturro, Maria Bello, Timothy Hutton, Charles S. Dutton, just amazing. And this was Johnny Depp before people got tired of Johnny Depp. I know it's hard to remember that time period, but this is, <laughs> he was basically still like this cool indie actor at that point. He had just done Pirates of the Caribbean. So he had, he had all of his street cred still and had been launched into stardom. And so this was kind of like peak Johnny Depp we were getting mm-hmm. at this point this point in his career True. and so this was a big movie a lot of people this i just remember this being a big buzz movie when it came out and it was a big disappointment for a lot of people i think but my belief is if you on a revisit it actually succeeds in what it's trying to do it it was probably hard to live up to peak johnny depp at that point and it definitely there are some weird choices in here you know johnny depp is one of those actors and probably a lot of people, this is probably not news to anyone because people hate him now. There's a, a huge backlash against Johnny Depp. But I think what's interesting about him, he's one of those actors like a Nicolas Cage who just swings for the fences and is extremely creative and will try anything. And sometimes it really works. And sometimes it leaves you scratching your head a little bit. And David Kep, although he is and was at this point, an extremely successful screenwriter. Um, you know, his directorial work was 
not as strong. I mean, I love Stir of Echoes, which had yeah. been his previous feature film, but you know, he hadn't done a lot of feature work at this point. And his first film trigger effect was a huge failure. So, you know, there was probably a lot of pressure on him. You're working with an actor like Johnny Depp. You probably let him run with it to some degree. He mentions on the behind the scenes documentary, Johnny Depp's not the kind of actor you can tell what to do. You give him direction. He runs it through his brain and then he does it the way he wants to do it based on having gone through that process. Interesting. Okay. He also said that one of the things Johnny Depp does is he brings ideas that are so out there to the table that you wonder if he's joking the first time he tells you. He said, said, that's what I really like about Johnny is sometimes it's like almost every time he brings an idea up, I have to wonder, wait, is he making fun of me? Like, is this a, Uh, is this a joke? And then he said, no, he actually is just that willing to kind of put himself out there. And, and as David kept put it, like, look stupid, look afraid. He said, it's, it's rare that you would get an actor of his stature and his age willing to, kind of play the fool and be afraid, you know, for someone who's like a Hollywood heartthrob type of actor, he said it's almost unprecedented that he is willing to kind of take these risks. And we've seen that in a lot of his movies, whether it's, you know, the Charlie of the chocolate factory stuff or Tusk, he's willing to look a fool. Um, and sometimes that really works. And sometimes that really doesn't work. But I like him in this movie. I like him a lot in this movie, in fact. And I think John Turturro, although he's an actor who is beloved, I think he's actually maybe the the worst of the two. I think, although I like what he does here, I think simply recasting the John Shooter role would elevate this film quite a bit because it, it, what you have is two actors who are both very quirky kind of going head to head. And it's so I think it is a little bit jarring. It doesn't give you kind of some of the beats and feelings you would expect to have in a movie. It doesn't have that kind of like traditional catharsis kind of feeling and what we expect from a heavy and a scene, ten, scenes of tension. It's always a little bit quirky and a little bit offbeat and and I and I like that, but I almost think it might be too much. And I think of the two, Johnny Depp gives the stronger performance. So I would like to almost see John Turturro recast in this. May I say on that point, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah, Wolfman. Uh, so I totally see what you're saying, especially now. It's really hard because actors, the, their choices can really affect the way you see a film. And at this time, it was uh, 2004. Yeah. You know, I thought he was actually quite menacing. And I was mainly familiar with him from like, what, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I think. Like Big Lebowski. Yeah, and Big Lebowski. And so... Um, But I was surprised at how menacing he was, and he was very intimidating and kind of troubling to me. But now Mm. that I've seen him in all these Transformers films with a really deplorable role, uh, as the films (laughs) get later, to be honest, I I actually, now, I would agree with you and and would probably prefer to see it with a different person. Because now, seeing him do the, you stole my story, I would be thinking of... This Transformers guy. But anyway, that's a great point. I I think he's an interesting actor. I just think it would have been maybe more traditionally pleasing if you had someone just playing it straight. And I think, you know, he's this Brooklyn guy doing this super. And again, I'm not from the South. I've been corrected, I guess, before in the past when I say that it's an over the top Southern accent. But to me, it seems 
like cartoonishly over the top Southern accent, but <laughs> maybe it's legit. I don't know. So anyway, um, Maria Bello is incredible in the movie, but she's barely in it. Timothy Hutton is really good in the movie. He's barely in it. Charles S. Dutton is really good in the movie. He's barely in it. This is really a two-hander and really almost a solo performance by Johnny Depp. And he carries the whole movie. And it's what you have is this actor or this writer, as I mentioned, he's accused of plagiarism by by shooter and and at first you know he kind of acts like shooter's crazy but then we start to find out well he may have had some problems in the past with plagiarism you know it was hinted at we don't ever find out the full story of what went on there but we know this is something he's been accused of before and charles s dutton who's kind of his right hand man has made that go away right so these are this is the kind of uh, situation that is not too out there for him. He's also in the midst of going through a divorce. And that is probably the main driving force of the drama in the film is that uh, his wife played by Maria Bello had been having an affair with Timothy Hutton. And as we found out early in the film, uh, Johnny Depp discovers them together and kind of flies off the handle and we are now seeing him in the midst of his depression about being left by his wife or, or leaving his wife, but essentially the, the fallout from this affair. <clears throat> and he's, he's struggling with that. He's struggling with not being able to write. And I think David Kep and I think Johnny Depp both talked about this in the behind the scenes. Sometimes it's a curse to watch that stuff because then it gets stuck in your head and then that's the only thing you can kind of right. <laughs> pull up. But I, but I did like what both of them said about you know, for a creative person, all you have is your imagination and your creativity. So number one, he has writer's block. Number two, someone is accusing him of plagiarism. And number three, he's going through like this personal health that's very distracting for him and is throwing him into this depression. And so he's really blocked. You know, it's it's kind of like his one thing he has, his one strength has been stripped of him. And so he's kind of in this really emasculated kind of role in the film. And uh, and that, and actually that's what I love about it the most is he is this guy just stuck in this cabin, kind of slowly going insane. It has a lot in common with the shining, obviously, you know, it's, it's, um, it's definitely uh, reminiscent of, of the shining in terms of kind of thematic stuff um mm-hmm. and and kubrick's version of the shining in particular it's very reminiscent of the dark half and i would almost say maybe the novel more than the film but it stars timothy hutton in the side role i don't think that's a coincidence that hutton was the star of the dark half and we're playing with some of the same kinds of themes that that film did you know he, also roman polanski was a big um influence on david kep when he was directing the film so you can see a lot of Polanski isms when it comes to the filmmaking you can see some Rosemary's Baby in there you know you can definitely see the tenant in there quite a bit and you can see a little bit of Hitchcock in there as well and so that that's what I like I like this stew of the shining and the dark half and the tenant mm-hmm. and Rosemary's Baby and Amy. repulsion as well I was thinking of mm-hmm yeah, there's another one I want to say that this reminded me of, but it'd be too much of a spoiler for this film if you had seen it. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not it's not that it's derivative because it's actually done very well. But 
but we yeah. see, we see this kind of thing that's done in this movie. We see it in other films as well. Well, I mean, I think this is King, first of all, covering somewhat familiar territory for himself. It does have its own twist, which is the plagiarism element. That's kind of something new that we haven't really dealt with. But other than that, it has some very familiar kind of beats and themes. Um, And then, you know, you've got David Kep bringing his cinematic influences on top of that, which I I, I don't know. I I really appreciate this movie. I think it's um, an interesting just little piece of work. And I... I love it. I think it's, it's, I think it's a film that if you kind of lower your expectations, it's one of those hidden gems that's actually better than I think um, history has remembered it as, you know, I think it's one that maybe removed of its context is a lot more entertaining and watchable and special. Mm-hmm. I will say one of its biggest weaknesses is the ending and it's, it's doubly unfortunate because it's a film that, you know, this writer in the movie is telling us over and over again, the ending is the most important part. It's all about the ending. And then I would kind of say the ending sucks. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's, that's a problem. Um, the it's specifically the last shot is almost okay. enough to ruin it for me. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you were referring to the reveal or the very, it's okay, really the last shot. It's so stupid. <laughs> Right. I hate it. And I was listening to David Kep again on the special features. And he says, you know, I, you know, here's what I was thinking with that last shot. And, you know, it, right before that, we've got this nice um, kind of like tilt down into <laughs> darkness. And it would have been a great place to end it. But he's like, I'm not a director that likes to iris out of the other movie. I really like a punchy ending. I like it to end with a with a punch. And I'm like, that was a huge mistake. I wish I could go back in time and tell you there was also, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> just the, li- the reveal was great, but I would say everything after the climax where it was kind of like, almost like a postscript. I really disliked that portion of the film. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like I could end it at the end of kind of the climactic scene, you know, well, and I would have liked it a lot more. Let me ask you a weird question about that, Josh. Like, so as a filmmaker yourself, I mean, I, I, do you find is it difficult to wrap up your film and like because like for example I think of a movie like Return of the King not horror but Lord of the Rings and it's like that that movie had like 29 endings just so many endings and it sometimes you see this or sometimes you see an ending like in Secret Window here that's unfortunate and it's like okay do people just not know where to stop or when to cut it off is it well i think david kemp was really conscious of it i think he thought he was doing it in a more sophisticated way because i think he thought it could be kind of like a sixth sense kind of ending where it was a big reveal surprise and he talks about this on the commentary and everyone says oh my gosh that was incredible and then it's over he wanted to try something different and what in his mind kind of makes something more lasting where that twist comes, you know, maybe three fourths of the way through it. And then you still have 15 minutes left of the film after that, mm-hmm. after that twist. And then, you know, we can follow out the progression of these characters as it goes. So it was something he was definitely thinking about. I think it may have been a misstep, honestly. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think he was someone who knew the ending he had in mind. It's not that it's terrible. I think some of these are Johnny Depp choices with, like, wardrobe and props. And then some of them are David Kep choices about 
punctuating the ending. And they're minor things, to be honest, especially with in the context of the entire film. But it is enough to kind of make me go, why did you have to do that? That's kind of weird. <laughs> so, I love the reveal, though. And I think yeah. I think he is so smart. Kep is so smart in his writing. I think he handles those transitions so well between mm-hmm. the realities and what we're supposed to believe and what we think is happening and and how things change. And, and he doesn't cheat. He doesn't... Um, take any shortcuts. He does all the work and, you know, things, scenes that could have two meanings. If you go back and rewatch them, it works the other way. And I love that when that can be done. Well, you know, he doesn't jip us as the audience and pull a fast one, you know? Right. Right. Now, D- Dr. Shock, have you seen secret window? I saw it when it came out in uh, in the theater. I have not seen it since I just saw it the one time. And I remember, I remember thinking it was, I remember uh, liking it. I do remember liking it, so. Yeah, I saw it in the theater as well, actually, but. There are a couple things that I like about this film just that are kind of incidental. One of them is David Kep talks about, either in the commentary or the behind the scenes, that Stephen King read the script and sent him an email and he said, hey, I like your script. Everybody in it's a son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I think that's great. You know, I, I like the idea of just a whole cast of characters that are unlikable and that's still working, you know, because oftentimes we're expected to like our main characters, but not in a Stephen King movie necessarily. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then uh, my daughter was homesick when I was watching this movie. And so I, we were, I actually didn't watch the movie with her. I was watching the behind the scenes because uh, I didn't think it was completely appropriate for her. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what was in there. I couldn't remember. But as we were watching behind the scenes, she's she said, you know what? If this was real. okay." So as I mentioned, Maria Bello and Johnny Depp are going through a divorce. She says, if this was real, I wouldn't divorce him because he's Jack Sparrow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Johnny Depp's uh, audience remains young. You know, I I, I wondered because they talked about one of the reasons this had to be PG-13 was because most of Johnny Depp's fan base were teenagers. And I thought, man, that was all the way back in 2003, you know, he was already getting older. And now they're saying the same thing about the Invisible Man, you know, 10 years, 13 years later. <laughs> it's like, does his audience just stay young permanently or do they not age with him? Well, I can I can say for a surety that uh, his, his audience is evergreen. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> the young ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, what do you say, Josh? Like, what do you rate this one? Then? Um, yeah, I think it's one of the better... King adaptations, certainly in this section of films that we're talking about, I think, you know, it probably doesn't rank amongst the classics, but those were also classic books, Pet Cemetery and Cujo and all of those were classic King written works. And so now we're in, a, in the later part of his career when he's kind of past his prime in terms of kind of mainstream appeal, you know, and mm-hmm. so we're delving into some of his short, short stories and novellas. Um, and all of the big name novels have already been adapted. And I think this is an excellent entry. You know, I think it's a, it's one of the better King movies in the last 10 years for sure. So um, has it been 10 years? Maybe it's uh, 13 years. <laughs> yeah. About 13. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think it's one of the, one of the better ones. And, you know, it's certainly, it's no children of the corn, six, six, six Isaac's return. 
but <laughs> right watchable <laughs> yeah okay um i i would give secret window uh 7.5 i would say it's a buy for me i i really enjoy it. a part of that is the special features you know i know not everyone is as into special features as, as i am but i am and they don't necessarily hurt a film if they're not included although i am slightly frustrated when an excellent movie comes out has no commentary or special features but it does in some cases elevate a film for me if it's got really great special features and this has three nice featurettes that together in a play hall setting make a nice behind the scenes documentary it's got a feature length commentary from david kep and kep is really smart and insightful and i really enjoy everything he has to say so uh, for me that elevates it to a buy Okay, gotcha. Yeah, for me, I, I think I'm in the six range. It's been a while since I've seen it, obviously, but um, yeah, it's like at least years. Yeah, it's it's at least a rental to to me. I mean, I didn't hate uh-huh. it or anything. I liked it just fine, but it was like, okay, you know. So, but Dave, right. do you remember what your range is on this? I could look it up because this is back when I was rating everything, but I don't. I, I would probably say maybe six point five, maybe a seven. Okay. Gotcha. And definitely worth a rental. All right. So that's secret rental. Sorry, secret window. <laughs> now we'll move into um, a feature review of another film from 2004 called Riding the Bullet. Hey, thanks for the ride. Oh, not a problem, man. Where are you headed? I got to see my mom in the hospital. What, is she sick? I honestly don't know what I'd do if I didn't have you. For a man who never escaped his past. Nothing is more dangerous than his future. Feeling all right? Yeah. So I wasn't really familiar with this whatsoever. It was actually at my local library. We have this little tiny library that's kind of out in the boonies and uh, they have a lot of Stephen King films there. So somebody who orders for my library loves Stephen King adaptations Hmm. and I've seen riding the bullet there many times. And I'm like, it's just because he's such a well-known author that libraries would carry his movies as well. I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I, I am a a frequent, I have been a frequent renter of many a film from many a different library. And I, other than like the Orem library, I don't remember seeing so many Stephen King films in one place. So, and, and they're like obscure ones too, like this, riding the bullet. So it's just interesting. But huh. anyway, yeah. this, this is based on a Stephen King novella. Um, and it was written exclusively for the internet, I guess. It was his debut on the internet. Um, it was first published in the year 2000 as the world's first mass market ebook, according to Wikipedia. And it was only $2.50 to download it. And so during the first 24 hours when they turned that puppy loose, I guess uh, sold over 400,000 copies that they were downloaded and it jammed the server and stuff. But anyway, this this short story, just so you know, the not short story, the novella, Riding the Bullet, was included in a King collection called Everything's Eventual. So... Anyway, and there have been other incarnations of it, but this movie itself was released in 2004. It had a limited theatrical release, was not successful in theaters. I think it only made $134,000, according to what I looked up. But here's the premise. You got this, um, this young man who's a little bit 
uh, preoccupied with death. Uh, he's just, he, he's kind of one of those people, <sighs> you, you, may, you may have met the type, just a little bit fatalistic, a little bit just, I, I, I don't know, just always thinking about death and, and how people would react if he died and maybe a tiny bit borderline suicidal. And so when this young man finds out that his mother is in the hospital and dying, he wants to get to her. And so he hitchhikes his way to the hospital. And on his way, he has a lot of weird experiences, but he's picked up by a stranger, a very mysterious stranger. And that stranger is played by David Arquette. Um, so writing the bullet, that title, uh, the bullet is a roller coaster at an amusement park that he went to with his mom when he was younger. This is set in the year 1969, but it doesn't really... 69, dude! Yeah, right, right. And at Halloween time. <laughs> so it is it it is one of those, like, Halloween movies. There are a little bit of, like, Halloween-related, you know, I guess set decorations and things in the backdrop, but not a ton. I'm just putting it out there. And I forget to mention this is directed by Mick Garris. Now, have you guys seen Riding the Bullet? No, but this is, it's set at the time I was born. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, that's a great time then. (laughs) It's, uh, so uh, along with David Arquette, uh, you got Barbara Hershey in this one, but the lead character is Jonathan Jackson, right? And uh, you'll also recognize uh, Erica Christensen. So uh, she's a young lady who's in this. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it, it once again, it feels like um, a TV movie to me. It has a lot of the same flavor as like thinner in its appearance. Like there's a Grim Reaper type of ghoul character you see once in a while. And he kind of looks um, not super scary. Um, there are lots. I think what bugged me the most about this film and 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 I mean really got on my nerves. There are lots of flashes of memories and other realities, a lot of fake outs where the thing you're seeing, the images you're seeing aren't actually happening. It's kind of, you know, it's not always a dream sequence, but it's like, oh, okay, that wasn't really a thing. And it's like, <laughs> that is so tiresome to me, you guys. I hate that. So yeah. that goes on and on. Well, you might not like Secret Window for that if you re- if you revisit. I like that. I love not knowing what reality you're in. Yeah, that bugs me a ton. And then, um, but there are parts of this that are a little bit creepy, a little bit worrisome. Like, um, it, it's weird because it, a lot of this movie, I think it, if it has charm, the charm comes from the way it makes you relate to other things in life. For example, there are lots of in, inborn or like, <laughs> like, that's not even the word I'm looking for, but like embedded little Stephen King references. Like there's a, you know, the car in it is a Plymouth Fury, for example. And there are references to other Stephen King films and even weird things like, um, for example, so he's hitching this ride with David Arquette and, and he keeps, as he's hitchhiking, he keeps having these weird experiences that make him feel uncomfortable. And um, that reminded me of a very disturbing story that's like a, a tiny, tiny little campfire tale I'll insert here if you guys don't mind. I had a cousin who was hitchhiking one time. And uh, this dude picked him up and the guy started like driving really fast, really fast, really fast, like like up around 80 and 90. And my cousin, who's, you know, who's a strong guy and everything, he's like, hey, buddy, you better slow down. I mean, this is kind of intense. Like if we wreck at this speed, we're going to die. 
And then and then the guy driving uh, pulled out his member and started pleasuring himself as he's driving 90 with my cousin in the passenger seat. I'm not kidding. Horrifying. Yikes. Yeah, I know. I know this is a weird story to tell on the podcast. But but anyways, he uh, went through this experience. My cousin, obviously, he wanted to jump out of the car, but he couldn't because they were going 90. And so he had to wait till like the whole show was over, so to speak. And then the guy pulled over and let, and let him out and he ran away because clearly that guy was a weirdo. So um, for whatever reason, and I promise that was truly my cousin and not me in that story. And I felt, because I, I, you know how people say, I knew this guy one time. But um, anyway, I think that's a disturbing, horrifying story. And that's why I told well, it here. Well, because you weren't the driver, I think we're fine. Yeah, I was not the driver, nor was I my cousin. But um, so this this ride this ride hitching, you know, it reminded me of that. Uh, there are like moments that are a little bit weird. Like you see um, one character at one point starts behaving like an animal and making animal noises and it comes out of the clear blue sky you don't even expect it and that's kind of creepy it's weird but I mean I realized I was like halfway through this film and I'm like this is so bizarre because not much has happened in here anyway there is one satellite story that I think is very effective it's um, for people who are unfamiliar satellite stories kind of like a, a little tale that a character tells that gives you additional insight into their backstory and history and there's a creepy little satellite story. That's your term for it. I mean, I think we should not ever mention satellite story without crediting yourself. Oh, so thanks. <laughs> that goes down in the, you know, horror. That's nice. Critic hall of fame. <laughs> yeah. The things that it's among the list of other things that the listeners make fun of me for. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, this, this particular satellite story is one that I would honestly, uh, uh, you know, cut out. And then like, you know, keep because it was so unsettling, a little creepy. And you could tell I haven't read Riding the Bullet, but it really seemed, yeah, this is like pure Stephen King stuff right here. And that's where it felt like he was true to form. But anyways, um, not a great movie. I did not enjoy it. For me, Riding the Bullet's a four out of ten. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I say avoid it. I like Jonathan Jackson. Was he no good? No, he was good. Actually, he was fine. I just, yeah. He plays Kyle Reese in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you're um, right. Mm-hmm. I remember him from uh, Insomnia. He's got a small role in Insomnia, which I really like the the Christopher Nolan version of Insomnia. Mm-hmm. And since you two, Dave and Josh, since you two are like walking internet movie databases. Um, you'll recognize a ton of like in addition to all the other Stephen King references within the movie there's a ton of like crossover casting where you got people cast in this that have been in a lot of mm. other Stephen King things he seems to do that's that. awesome but um, anyways that's riding the bullet and from 2004 listeners if you've seen it let us know what you thought about it in the show notes for this episode Okay, and then we have, in 2005, we have The Mangler Reborn. So this Mangler thing is like, you know, here to stay. <laughs> like people, I mean, right? It's the new children of the corn. Who knew? Uh, I mean, maybe maybe we need to do a Mangler trilogy review. I mean, I think that could be interesting, right? No, Maybe a children of the corn versus Mangler. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'll tell you this, though. I haven't seen The Mangler Reborn from 2005, but on IMDb, it only has a 3.1 out of 10 <laughs> and 
Um, not very many. Anyways. And then there's a TV movie from 2006 called Desperation. I don't know if you guys have seen that. No? Okay. No. And then in uh, 2006, we have a, a mini series called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I believe you've seen that. I've got that. that one. Yeah. You own it, right? Yeah, I do. Tell it. You know, sadly, it doesn't actually have that many stories from the book Nightmares and Dreamscapes. That's why the reason I was super excited for it was to see some of those shorts adapted into into film form. Um, I think it's about half and half in terms of works adapted from King and then just new stories for the for the series, but mm. there's some good ones in there. I, what I, the one I really wanted to see is, you know, uh, that's part of Nightmares and Dreamscapes is Stephen King. One of his earliest published works was he did a kind of almost like a fan story of Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and it was Watson's big case. I don't remember the title of it. It's something like that though, like Watson's Watson's case or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, he got it published like in a magazine, and so this was republished in in the book. And I was really hoping to see that adapted. I, I'm really curious what uh, a Stephen King Sherlock Holmes movie would look like. But oh wow, hmm. anyway, would... it's decent. There's some good ones. You know, we talk about these mini series, and this is more of a um, anthology, I guess. It, you know, it's it's a bunch of little shorts, and so it's fun. Yeah, when this came out in 2006, right, it was, um, it says on the advertisement that it was a four week television event because it's like eight hours total, mm. right? And it was on TNT. You can get it, you can get it really inexpensively on DVD, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So eight, eight short stories. That's interesting. Okay. And then um, this is, this goes back from 2007. This is a little bit of what you were talking about, Josh, where um, it's basically based very loosely or spun off from something that was a Stephen King adapted thing, but it's unrelated. Mm-hmm. Creepshow 3, it's an unofficial sequel. It has five short films, but none of those were written by Stephen King, so I don't even think that should be counted, probably, in this, even though it has the name Creepshow. Right. Anyways. Alright, well at this point, let's move into Dr. Shock's feature review of 1408. When Mike Enslin lost his daughter... The afterlife became his obsession. You probably want to hear all about our haunted history. But after years of searching, he no longer believes. So you're saying there's no such thing as ghosts? I'm saying I've never seen one. Nothing would make me happier than to experience a paranormal event. Gerald Olin, manager of the Dolphin. I can just get the key to 1408. In the 95 years of the hotel's existence, there have been 56 deaths in 1408. 56. From 2007, uh, directed by Michael Halstrom. This is based on a King short story, uh, and it's about a, uh, I guess, a, a, a researcher, sort of a paranormal, supernatural researcher, played by, was it Mike Enslin's the character's name, played by John Cusack. And he's, uh, he's just invents, investigating haunted locations. Well, every time he goes to one of these places, he hasn't found anything yet that's been uh, convinced him of anything supernatural. But what it is, is he's heard about this place in New York, the New York uh, Dolphin Hotel, uh, room 1408. Uh, that's supposedly one of the most haunted places in, in, the, in the United States. So um, he tries to book a room there, but his, you know, he's denied. They're not letting him book it. Uh, he threatens legal action against them, and they say, okay. Um, we'll let you go in there. But, um, so when he shows up to check in, uh, the hotel manager, 
uh, played by Samuel L. Jackson, tries to talk him out of it. You know, he, he says that uh, more than 50 people have died in that room. Uh, and those who check in usually don't stay for more than an hour. Well, Ensign's thinking, okay, this is like some real good, you know, PR or whatever. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do it anyway. So he signs the floor, uh, signs the book, goes up to the 14th floor, um, but uh, finds that, yeah, there's really a lot of stuff going on in this room. Um, and <laughs> yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> right. Um, I, liked it. I liked how the, I liked the scene with Samuel L. Jackson. Well, he's just sort of telling him, hey, you know, don't do this. Um, You're not going to like it. It's a quick little scene, but once he gets up to the room, I mean, a lot of crazy stuff starts happening in this room. Um, He sees um, sort of, I guess, what would be shadows of the past of the other people who had been in that room. Um, He has a radio that plays only the carpet which would be pretty horrific it's horrific to um, me yes <laughs> oh come on you guys <laughs> i'm serious i if, if people could see me i would show you like a picture like holding down your eyelids like really low when my wife she loves the carpenters when she plays the carpenters that's what it makes me feel like when i'm listening to the carpenters my eyelids <laughs> drooping go ahead i was just being i don't really have that much against the carpenters but i guess, you're, guess you're t- now don't start <laughs> don't um it's it, you know it's there's there are there are a lot of scenes in this and he does try to get out he does say okay i've got to get out of here um and i think the one scene that gets me is he tries to get the attention of this this uh guy in a hotel across the street only to realize that he's looking at a mirror image of himself and that he's not in the room alone. Um, that one I thought was probably one of the creepiest scenes in the movie. Um, but we also find out why he's doing all of this research. You know, as this plays out, he gets he, he has these conversations on his computer um, with, I guess, his... Uh, I don't know if it's his ex-wife or they're separated, uh, played by Mary McCormack. Um... And we do get an idea of, okay, here's why he's doing all of this. Um, now, I, I, and without going into spoilers, the only part of the movie was the ending. Uh, the first time I saw it, it kind of confused me. I'm like, wait a second, is this real? Is this, like, actually happening? Or, you know, what's going on? And as I understand, there have been a few different endings um, to this movie. And I don't know, Josh, if this came up in your in your um, uh, during the interview. Uh, nothing with the multiple endings. I did figure something out about the movie um on my i I rewatched it before i I did the interview with matt greenberg Mm -hmm. and i figured out kind of the code i think the code to decode it okay uh, and suddenly it all made sense to me but oh all right interesting i have to get that from you (laughs) it's up up down down left right left right ba select start (laughs) yeah there you go (laughs) it's a Um, contra joke for people sorry uh, and John John Cusack, I think uh, I think he does a, a decent job in this movie. I think he's playing the sort of uh, cynical character at the beginning there, and I think you do you do see the he goes through the full range of emotions, and then the terror, and then just the like I said, when you realize why he's doing all of this, um, you've got that sort of scene of uh, the, that explains it all. Um, I thought that he did a, I thought he did a decent job in this, but I think what really gets you is just everything this guy goes through all of the different things that happen to him in this room and the fact that he just can't get out of it. 
uh, one of the things I thought was cool is there is a scene um, with an, with firemen and an axe, and the axe that they use in the scene in this movie is the exact same one supposedly uh, that Jack Nicholson used uh, to break down the door in The Shining. Oh, nice. um, from 1980, I thought that was kind of a neat little trivia fact. Um, but no, I, I like this movie. I would probably give it a, um, I'd give it a seven out of seven out of ten, and I'd say it's definitely worth renting. Uh, and you might even want to, you might even end up wanting to see it again. I mean, you do learn a lot of the, the twists. There are some twists in here. Um, that then I don't know if uh, on a second viewing, I don't know uh, how people would react to that, but. Uh, I like it. I've seen it a couple times, and um, yeah, I'd definitely give it a seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's about where I am with it too. Uh, you know, I'm not the supernatural subgenre is not necessarily my thing, like hauntings and stuff. But I remember I saw this in the theater, and um, it was creepier than I was expecting. So um, yeah, I dig it. I'm about in the seven range. What about you, Josh? Uh, this is one that our listener, David Dunbar, actually, and he's a big defender of the paranormal films, usually against Jay. Right. <laughs> for being dismissive of them. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, he was one that said, you know what's good and underrated is 1408. And I had seen it, and I remember kind of liking it. And for me, kind of floating in that secret window area where I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a, one of the more underrated King films. But going back and revisiting, I think it is one of the very best of this section that we're talking about. You know, I think it's up there in contention for the best of kind of this period of time, the next 20 years of King. Mm. And um, I think it's really beautifully realized. I think they're just fun scare moments, but, and it's not like I'm a genius or anything. I, I think they even maybe explicitly say it. And I mean, this is a spoiler for the next 30 seconds John Cusack says, I see the pattern and I realize and he may, again, he may even explicitly say, it, but basically what he's experiencing are the nine circles of hell. And so each kind of section of the film is one of the circles of hell and he's experiencing a different thing, whether it's, you know, lust, gluttony, greed, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery, or seeing that theme play out during that section of hell. And he has okay. to kind of survive all of those nine circles of hell to kind of escape the room basically oh wow so when i when i realized that i thought that is brilliant yeah i love that about it um the other thing i said this to matt greenberg in our interview which is coming up but it's kind of like you know he mentioned yeah of course the shining is a big influence on this film and i said it's almost like the entire film takes place in room 237 you know, yeah, right, like, right. that's <laughs> like what this movie is so anyway i think with those kind of in mind I think if you go back and revisit this film or if you watch it for the first time, it's pretty enjoyable, you know, just on kind of like a basic watch through. But I think there's something deeper going on. It's not just kind of like, you know, spook house scares throughout. I think they're actually it's saying something in each of these sections of the film. Nice. So I would give 1408 an eight and I would say buy it. I think it's an underappreciated gem in the King filmography. All right. Okay, listeners, so at this point in the show, I know that uh, we told Joel goodbye earlier, but we already recorded this before he left because we had to get this in the show. Joel has a a rant of sorts that he wants to talk about regarding <laughs> The Mist. Oh, if Daryl ever hears this, I'm sure he... Actually, Daryl won't listen. Darryl, as soon as Daryl heard you say The Mist, he, he turned it off. It's like, oh, God, I've heard this enough. Uh, okay, so The Mist. <clears throat> quick, and I will keep it quick, backstory. 
I read the novella for the mist from skeleton crew. I want to say I was in ninth grade. As I said before, around that same time that I got a hold of it and was reading it on that dark and stormy night and it traumatized me and I couldn't finish it. Mm-hmm. I found, you know, I had skeleton crew and I read several of the short stories in that, but the novella of the mist really struck a chord with me and it still may rank up there with my favorite Stephen King story overall. Something about it, I just love. I love the the siege aspect. I love the just that claustrophobic sense of everybody trapped together and uh, the, you know, the, that evil out there you can't see, but it's it's right. You don't know what it is. I love that it's never fully explained. And I love that the end of the story, and mild, I mean, I guess it's a spoiler for the end of that story, but it ends open-ended where you know several characters, I won't say who, have gotten away from the main location and they're on on the road so to speak and you find that this essentially this whole story was being written by the narrator as a sort of a hey if you find this you know we're we're out there we're still moving forward but you know if if it ever comes down to it i have my gun yada yada it's been a while since i've read the story so i'm I'm paraphrasing a bit (laughs) so when over the years i'd heard rumblings of they're gonna make the miss they're gonna make the miss so i hear that finally frank darabont is going to make the mist. And it's like, <laughs> okay, interested, you know, like, yeah. like, like, like the Darabont. We're good. We're good. Right. So, so he made, he makes the mist. Uh, that came out in, it was 2008, correct? 2007. Seven, seven, mm-hmm. seven, seven. Okay. So like what Dave said earlier, uh, where I were, I don't remember if we were recording when he said it, but <laughs> when he said the thing about the 2000, uh, or rather 97 time frame was sort of his, his kids were being born and life was going on. Th- this would have been when my second child was on his way. So we had the first one who was still a baby. So this was definitely not, we didn't get to go to the movies very often. Right. <laughs> and we did not get to see this in the theater for which I was very disappointed. <laughs> so when it came on DVD, I, as soon as it came out, boom, rented it, get it in there. I'm watching this movie and I am blown away. I love it. I love the creature effects. I love the acting. I love the fact that it seemed to be adhering as, you know, relatively well as it could to the storyline. It just, it worked for me on every level. (sighs) (laughs) And then we get to the last two damn minutes of this GD movie. I can tell you're going to make me mad right now. I'm, I'm going to make you mad because I've got, I've got a, here's a, there's a reason though. I have a reason. This isn't just, Oh, now from here on out, massive spoiler alert for the end of the mist. And I don't give a shit, So just listen up. <laughs> <laughs> Let me explain why this pisses me off. Does it piss me off that he killed his kid? Yes. But that ever, this is where Daryl always misinterprets it. He calls me a weenie and he says, I'm soft. And that's why it bothers me. It is not why it bothers me. It doesn't just, but it doesn't bother me because I have kids. It's like, Oh no, that's not why. What bothers me about it, it is emotionally dishonest. And it was dishonest just so that Frank Darabont could make a political point. So let me just throw that out there. And now whether I agree with his political point or not is beside the point. In fact, I find oftentimes I very much would agree with the, the point a filmmaker's making. I heard you make a comment about the uh, movie Crash. I believe it was on MPW mm-hmm. not so long ago, Jay. Yeah. And uh, and you're like, everybody gives that movie a hard time. You know what I think of it a hard time? Because, wow, racism's bad. Thanks, Paul Haggis. I didn't know that. Because I'm going to sit here for two and a half hours while you tell me. And I... <laughs> My point is, I don't like to be preached to. It annoys me, okay? <laughs> I, I don't mind a message. I don't mind a message. Really. I love Dawn of the Dead. There's a message in that movie, but it's not like beating me over the head with it. So 
Anyway, we get to the end of the mist. <clears throat> he has spent two hours of my life, <laughs> many more than theoretically for the character, trying to keep his kid alive. Mm-hmm. In fact, as I recall, and I haven't seen the movie in a while, to be fair, to be fair, doesn't the kid have asthma or something? He can only do the thing where the kid's got something wrong with the diabetes, asthma, or something, and he's got to get the medicine. Wasn't that part of the shtick with the kid? I don't remember that. Do you guys remember yeah, that? Am I, am I imagining that? Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm like putting in. <laughs> Are you thinking of Cujo? <laughs> I maybe. I don't know. I'm like yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe I am. I don't know. I I thought that there was something wrong with the kid, and like so he spent part of the movie also. But he does spend a big chunk of the movie trying to keep his kid alive, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we get to the end. We're sitting in a car with half the cast of The Walking Dead. And we we have this moment where they realize they've got enough bullets for everybody but one of them. So he's going to do it. Okay. Now, all the adults in the car, fine. They are perfectly capable of making the decision. And, you know, if he, and if he could do it, I mean, I think that you'd be harder pressed to just shoot people in the face regardless of whether or not you heard scary noises outside your car. <laughs> But that's the thing. That's all he hears are noises, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like they're, um, and I can't believe I'm going to use this as an example, but I am. So the Miss the TV show that's on right now, it's not great. Believe me, it's not great. I There's a moment in it where a character is trying to save another character that he's related to that he doesn't even like that much, okay? Really doesn't like him that much, but he, he does something to try to save him in a medical sense, and then they're trying to get through the mist, and the guy falls over, and he starts getting covered in leeches, and the guy who doesn't like him that much, but who's related to him and not as a father-son situation, still goes out of his way to try to save this poor SOB up until the moment where the guy's got so many leeches on him, there's no way that they're going into his wounds. It's disgusting. The guy pulls out a gun, is like, and he's, he's like shaking like he can barely do it, and then pop. And the guy's like, do it, do it, pop. Okay, I get that. The guy had the guy wasn't gonna survive that. And you're putting him out of his misery. <laughs> In the mist the movie, they're hearing scary noises. Now, granted, they know that what's out there, but there's no sense of impending, like, holy crap, the things in the car with us were all going to die. Like, it was ne- it was just like, oh, screw it. I quit. Joel, and it's- yeah, what? I gotta call BS on this right now. Okay, call uh, BS. Uh, okay. And uh, Dave and Josh, feel free to jump in when you want. But uh, I'm just saying, we, up to this point in the film, this, this lead character, the Thomas Jane character, has seen um, enough evidence that these things coming out of the mist are deadly, obviously. Sure. And... Sure. Um, they're, what is it? Out of gas or whatever it is. And so yeah, they're, 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 they're stuck. yeah, they're, they're dead in the water and they are surrounded by this mist and therefore creatures. And mm-hmm. so they are, they are at the end of their rope as far as they understand. And so the reason they're, they're doing this is like, I mean, the noises, the scary noises, we know that, yeah, there are legitimate threats out there and they can kill us and they will kill us. And so I just think that the fact that he he ended up, you know, like you said, the adults can make that decision for themselves. But the fact that he took out his kid was like, well, he doesn't want his kid to suffer this awful Absolutely. demise. Absolutely. Absolutely, Jay. And if there was something other than auditory evidence for everything you're saying, <laughs> I would buy everything you just said. But there is no. There, there is literally rumblings. And there's a key reason why there's only rumblings. And we know it's coming, right? Right? It's not a monster. We know that, right? So my point being is he only ever hears anything. There's that. So if all the, uh, if all the 
adults in the room want to be a bunch of wusses and not even try to run for it, not even attempt. Not like so. If you got the gun and you got okay, let's say everybody okay, you've offed all the adults in the car. You've got your kid. You're really telling me, Jay, you wouldn't have picked your kid up and said, you know what? <sighs> it, let's go. And you just haul ass. And the second your second that thing gets on you, you put the gun to the kid's head. Blam. Well, okay, that's just it. The- no, 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 no. See, that's where I think. Um, I think that you're not realizing something joel and that is that you, there, there is <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being serious you, once if something gets a hold of your your kid what, yeah. what is what is why is that so funny i can't breathe <laughs> wait hey jay you wanted this by the way i, I know I, i'm so happy i i love it that we're talking about this i think with it people okay. should talk about the mist way more than they do but anyways uh, okay, so if something gets onto your kid, that's just that you don't know when the moment is th- that will be your last second of possibly putting him out of his misery. And this father was so worried about the kid suffering a horrible demise, he didn't want to risk it. So when he heard the rumblings coming, it's like, well, um, they could smash my part of the car and the kid would be alive and then one of those little freaky things would get in and like suck his guts out or something. Oh, you're right. Jay, now you put it that way. Screw it. Why, when they went into the grocery store and were buying baked beans or whatever, you didn't just beat the kid to death with a can? I mean, life is hard. The kid could die in number eight, right? Um, so, I mean, F it. Just kill the little bastard and be done with it. I'm just saying, why wait until the creatures are literally surrounding you and there's actual evidence that you're all going to die you know i say screw it you got your kid there you got a gun it's kind of foggy out you know what you do what you got to (laughs) do my point is (laughs) i would just i would just suggest that if it were my child i would find it extraordinarily difficult especially when i've got two hours of a movie to show as evidence that i really busted ass to keep that little son of a gun alive (laughs) that i am going to just oh you know what? Ooh, scary sounds. Pop. <laughs> Maybe I messed up. Oh, but no, I'm now going to finally get out of the car and take it like a man. Come get me, bad monsters. Oh, oh wait. Tank? Well, you've heard of a breaking point, right? You've heard of like. I, I, get, I get it. I get it. My saturation is, point yes, with something absolutely, like this. Absolutely. But if I guess where I'm going for me personally, there was not enough. I go back to the really not so great TV show version of this scenario where two characters are related. One character really doesn't even like the other one. Certainly not as much as this guy liked his kid. And in fact, the, the other, the, the character they didn't like that much asked him early on before any of the really bad stuff had happened to kill him, to put him out of his misery. Cause he was just in pain from some in, uh, wound that he had. And, and so it wasn't until you, this guy's covered in just horrible crap. It's like, you know what? There's no way there's no coming back from this. I guess what I'm saying is that before you're going to shoot your kid, there's probably going to need to be something more than sound. Now, let's just set that to the side for a second. Just set it to the side. So okay. he gets out of the car. Boom. Military. Isn't that ironic? Oh, he did it for nothing. What a tragedy. Now, look, I like dark endings. Okay. I, I, I See, that's again. Daryl likes to say, you're just a wuss. You don't like. No, I like dark endings. I love seven. I loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I I love dark endings. Dark endings do not buy Night of the Living Dead. Dark ending. I don't mind a dark ending when it feels emotionally honest to me. And I think that is my 
catch with the miss. It felt <laughs> like there was an emotion, emotional disingenuousness to it just so you could have that ironic twist. That is what annoyed me about it. Here's because, the thing. Like, they couldn't have had the ending they wanted to have even if they had shown one of their mon- – I mean, I don't know. Okay. No, so, they could, no, no, you're right. He it doesn't work the military. You're right. You're right. The military thing doesn't work unless – but that's my point is that it felt like it was just – all of it was just so you could have – That's it's for- so tragic. That's what's so sad about it. Well, it made it made me throw the box across the room. Wait, wait, Joel. Okay, so I'm I'm coming from a different angle because I think there's another aspect. You want to kill your kids? Go. That, that you might be missing. <laughs> <laughs> I say there. Okay, you might be missing this too. Yes. Be yes. your your very criticism of the film, the actual thing that you're criticizing, which is he did this drastic thing that is irreversible. He did this based on sound. He he made a terrible mistake, right? He did. He did. Well, the fact that um, he quickly and immediately realizes that he did that in vain for no reason and that they were actually out of the woods, that that that's like punishment. That's the suffering. Like he gets he gets to suffer from that and feel that and experience that. And and so he is actually punished for the very thing that you're criticizing him for. So what did he do to justify punishing him? Will you phrase that again? I'm sorry. I didn't understand. I guess it. what I'm saying is as a character, mm-hmm. like for that level of punishment to be delivered to him. That severely. Okay. Mm-hmm. That severely. What was it about anything leading up to it in the movie that would have made that emotionally satisfying in any way, shape or form or, or most like, okay, I'll give you an example. Seven without going into exactly how that movie ends Mm -hmm. the there is an emotional satisfaction even though it's horrific and nobody deserves what happens to those people in the end (laughs) it it feels emotionally right like it feels like you it makes sense this character was rage this it it all kind of makes sense right but to me the mist only makes sense when you realize that frank darabont wanted to have it was a thorough intrusion it was a moment of an author <laughs> saying, you know what, I'm going to make a point because keep in mind, keep in mind politically, right? That was we're, you know, we're going on in the Iraq war. All this stuff was happening. Darabont has made statements about it being a bit of a statement, all of that. And that's fine if he wants to do something with that. I guess what I have a problem with is it felt somewhat ham fisted mm-hmm. and, w- and, it, 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 and it caused a character to do something that I felt like up to that point, there was no evidence he would have been inclined to do it. Now, if you had had a moment and maybe I'm forgetting it, maybe you guys be like, oh, there was this one scene where the kids got his you know back to him and he's like, he almost clubs him with a, you know, a frozen ham hock. I don't know. In, in the back of the, the grocery <laughs> store, maybe I missed something. I'm just saying, I don't remember there being a moment in that entire movie where you go, damn. He's going to have to take that kid out if need be. I mean, you never <laughs> got that. <laughs> you know no what? Foreshadowing. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well no, if those eggs are your kid's they're, skull, so be it. Facing, I got it. Right. <laughs> they're facing the apocalypse by monsters. You know what oh. I mean? Like, it's it's war. War is yes. hell. What yes. if his son had been run over by a tank? Would that have been... Uh, Better ending for you because that's random. That's kind of like a war situation. Well, I guess it's a, so I guess it becomes a question. So is this, you know, come down to a situation of just random coincidence or because it really wasn't random. It was a decisive act that the dad goes, <laughs> I've, got, I've got X number of bullets with X number of people. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Therefore, Junior is going to take a nap. So I'm just saying there was an intentional <laughs> thought there. It wasn't like if something again, if if there had been some evidence 
<laughs> that emotionally that made sense. I wouldn't have might look the ending, the real ending to the end of Cujo, which I know King himself has said mm-hmm. he hate, which is, I think is ironic. He wishes he hadn't done that ending, but apparently he prefers this ending of the missed movie to what he came up with in his short story, which doesn't end that way. Now, if I remember, and I'm, Again, pulling this out of the ether, I think there is a little bit of an illusion that if it came down to it, the dad would do what he had to do. Mm -hmm. I think there was like a hint of that, but he doesn't do it in the story. Now, again, had he done it and it made sense why he did it? Okay, but I guess I I go back to... It just the way that whole play, thing played out for me personally. It's it just it, it wasn't for me because it just felt this emotionally hollow, like and not in a oh that's tragic. I'm I feel emotionally empty right now kind of way, but more in like a what the hell? Like what 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 you hear some spooky noises and you pop your kid? I don't get this. I do not get who does this. I don't get it. Okay, I have one last question. That's who does it. This is not related to your complaint (laughs) with the film. I just have one last question about the film. Since we're talking about The Mist, um, have you seen the black and white version of The Mist from 2007? I have not seen it, no. Okay, so for listeners out there, if you uh, if you chose to listen to the spoiler section of this... (laughs) Sorry. No, it's fine. We gave them a warning, (laughs) so it's fair. Um, I would recommend, I don't know how Josh and Dave feel about this, but I re- I would recommend watching the black and white version because although I like the color version, I think that the effects hold up a little bit better. They look better in the black and white version. So oh. just putting that out yeah, there. And, and please understand. I, I, highly, I highly recommend the mist. I think it's one of the best Stephen <laughs> King adaptations that exists. But also, yeah, I think the black and white version, because I don't think sometimes like when we talked about the, uh, the Chrome edition of Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's cool, but for me, so much of what I loved about that was the color. I just think it's right. visually just amazing. It's a feast, right? And so yes. I I feel like I lost something watching the black and white version of Fury Road just based on the trailer. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's cool. But sure. for this for the mist, I don't think there was much going on in the color of this film, other than the Drew Struzan posters. I don't. I don't think you lose anything by going black and white, and I think you gain a lot. Yeah, so. agreed. Let me let me back up what Josh just said. I actually agree. It is one of the best cinema, Stephen King adaptations ever. I, I think you have to understand the flip side of you know hate is is love theoretically. Or I guess they, they actually say it's it's uh, what is it the uh, the opposite of love isn't hate is apathy. But still, the point is is that the kind of passion that hate creates. You know, love has something as well. I loved 95% of the movie, which is probably why I got so pissed at the end because I loved it so much. And therefore I felt like at the end of it, I was like, I don't know that I ever want to watch this again. And that really pisses me off because I like this movie, but it just felt (laughs) there was something about at the time. Now, full disclosure, I haven't seen it since. So I need, I will say it right now publicly. I I will rewatch it with... And I won't even use air quotes when I say an open mind. <laughs> I will rewatch it. Mm-hmm. I will try to do the black and white version because I think that would at least be cool. And it, and I remember mm-hmm. Darabont talking about one. Originally, he wanted to shoot a black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I would be down for it. Now, years ago, when I started Forgotten Flicks, I actually wrote an article called Why, uh, Why the Walking Dead Made Me Crow. And it was all about the fact that it was right after the premiere of walking dead came out and how amazing it was and how essentially i took back every bad thing i'd ever 
uttered under my breath about Frank Darabont after the mist. Uh, so, so the point is, is that I do acknowledge that this is my problem. I realize I'm in probably the extreme minority when it comes to how people feel about the mist. But for me personally, there was just something so emotionally disingenuous about the way that whole thing played out. It just didn't feel real to me. It just didn't feel like that character under that specific moment of circumstances would have done that act. It just felt <laughs> It just felt hollow. So fair that's, enough. That, that's my rant. So everyone, that is that is our uh, dear friend here, Gilman Joel Robertson. You can hear more of him as we said earlier at Retro Movie Geek and Universal Monsters Cast. Hope you enjoyed him because it's the last time he'll be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in 2007 we had No Smoking, which is a feature film version riffing on the short story Quitters Inc., which we saw earlier in what was it cat's eye i believe cat's eye yeah yeah and so it's that same thing but expanded out to a feature film did you guys see no smoking from 2007 no okay no all right and then there was a tv movie uh remake basically of children of the corn it was the second adaptation right second run around of that from 2007 and um, I never saw that. Did you guys see that TV adaptation? Nope. No. <laughs> okay. Same. <laughs> now, I haven't seen this one. It's uh, not horror, I don't think. I think it's a crime thriller, but it stars Christian Slater, and it's called Dolan's Cadillac from 2009. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to look that up and watch it. Again, not horror, but it's about a young man. It's a young man that seeks to avenge his wife's death after she's murdered by a Las Vegas mobster. So that's I love Christian Slater, so I'm totally gonna check that out. (laughs) I know, me too, me too. And then, uh, this is one that I every once in a while people will tell me to catch up with this, I haven't done it yet. Uh, it's uh, the TV miniseries Bag of Bones from 2011. Do you guys watch this? No, I didn't know. Okay, yeah, some some people really enjoy that. And then in 2011, we have Children of the Corn Genesis, (laughs) so I don't know what number that is, but. It's a lot. I have not seen it either. I think that's nine. Uh, yeah. You said three more after 666. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and, and then in uh, 2013, we had the third adaptation of Carrie, which is starring Chloe Grace Moretz. And yeah. it, it, it wasn't, I mean, of course, it's not the Sissy Spacek 76 version, but it, it was better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. Yeah, it was fine. We Jay, you and I reviewed that together on Movie Podcast Weekly episode fifty six. First, we re- reviewed Carrie nineteen seventy six together, and then we reviewed Carrie twenty thirteen together. So, if people want to check out our reviews and ratings, there, I will link to that in the show notes. But it's Movie Podcast Weekly episode fifty six. Thank you. Yeah, that was a fun time. I remember that little compare and contrast that we did. All right, and then there's, uh, I haven't seen this. It's classified as a drama thriller. It's called A Good Marriage from 2014. You guys seen that? That sounds familiar to me, but I do not remember that one. Okay, it's, yeah. it's. I can't, I can't say for sure. It's the one that has um, Joan Allen and it's Stephen Lang is in it. It's uh, after 25 years of a good marriage, what will Darcy do once she discover her husband's oh. sinister secret? Yeah, I actually heard some good things about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Me too. And and the 
the cover art, you got you got two ha- two towels hanging there, hand towels, and one of them's bloody with bloody handprints, and they say Mister and Mrs. on it. It looks to be horror, but I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I I, I do remember hearing some good things about that. Okay, um, I feel like our listeners were talk were talking about that one time. I wonder if I think so too. That's one that any of them had seen. I think I know Ian West saw it, um, but I don't remember what his review was. Okay, yeah. All right, and then we have, um, I remember when this was like uh, being sold in Walmart prominently from 2014, Big Driver, the TV movie, Um, and it's not horror either, I don't think, I think it's a crime mystery thriller type about a famous writer that sets out for revenge after a brutal attack. I haven't seen that one. Do you guys? A writer, you say? Big Driver (laughs) is what it's called. Yeah, and there's a, a, a mystery writer is the subject of the film and so that's that's that one and then from 2014 there is uh, mercy which i have not seen did you guys end up seeing that one no no i i was hoping to catch up with it but i hadn't uh that was one matt greenberg uh wrote the original screenplay for it was a dollar baby we've talked about the dollar babies on the last episode he optioned it from stephen king for a dollar and uh, went out and tried to get some interest in it and he was just a huge fan of the short and he talks about this in depth during our interview. Um, but one thing that I've heard is that um, it, it just kind of did not go the way they were hoping it to. And there was people were kind of disappointed in this on the filmmaker side, but mm-hmm. it was released by Blumhouse tilt. Okay. Yeah. And I see it's available on Amazon video for three bucks. If people want to rent it, check it out. Okay. Um, and then we have a cell from 2016. Um, I mean, it's, I'm so surprised that some of these like, you know, newer things that I, I'm not as familiar with. I mean, it seems like, especially newer since we've been at a horror podcasting and stuff, we would have caught up with more of these, but, um, my apologies to the listeners, but, but yeah, yeah. Th- this is the one that's, has, uh, John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson again, together again, when a mysterious cell phone signal causes apocalyptic chaos. An artist is determined to reunite with his young son in New England. Hmm. So. I wonder if that one was one of those foreign releases. You know, sometimes and Cusack does those as well, where they uh, they're kind of foreign funding and they kind of don't really do a release here in the U.S. They just kind of come out on DVD. But I'm not sure. Just hmm. speculation. But Cusack does do some of those sometimes. Yeah, it's categorized on IMDb as action, drama, horror, and people can see it at this point, at least on Amazon Video for four bucks, it looks like. So if you want to rent it. All right. So um, right now in our lineup here, we have arrived at the Dark Tower. Uh, Now, here's what's interesting about this. If you're listening to this episode presently, okay, this very show, uh, we're about, in just a few moments, we're going to bring you our feature review of The Dark Tower. But as we're recording this right now in two different sittings at this very moment, we have not seen it just yet. I'm seeing it tomorrow night. Um, but, you know, we'll bring you a feature review on the recording. But guys, just, I I know I don't know how you feel about the own predictions or worries or hopes, but I mean, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm hopeful. My fingers are crossed. I'm seeing it tomorrow. But I'm a little worried. I'd kind of like to make a prediction here. Um, I, 
I hope I like it. I don't think I'll love it, though. What do you guys say? What are you basing that on? The trailer. I am very displeased. The trailer looks a little bit like um, artificial to me. And just, you know how some films, for example, like Gone Girl. That trailer looked very striking and stunning and and just well-made. And then the film was sophisticated. And then when I look at this trailer for The Dark Tower, it looks closer to, you know, like a, a superhero movie type of trailer or like a, you know, Dracula Untold or something like that. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just not loving it. And I'm also worried. I haven't read the books. Okay. But just hearing, I've heard how it's adapted and so forth. And I'm worried about that too, because I'm thinking, okay, this isn't going to be quite what everybody was loving so much about the book. So it's just weird to me that it would be adapted in such a way because this has such a, the Dark Tower series has such a fan base and such a following, you guys. It's like, how could they miss if they just would do it faithfully? That's one thing I don't get in a lot of these Stephen King adaptations. It's like, so so many of them kind of stray from Stephen King's work. And I know that they have to condense it because cinema is a reductive medium. We talked about that. But I'm just I'm just shocked they don't stick a little more closely to the material. I mean, I don't know what to base that on. I haven't heard much about it. I had only heard positive things about it until this week. I had only heard, I had heard a lot of positive stuff that Stephen King was super high on it. Um, I am a huge fan of Idris Elba, so I'm excited about it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't have, I, I also have not read the books and I don't know. So I have no expectations. So I feel like I'm going to, I'm actually thinking I'm going to enjoy it cause I don't have nothing to compare it to. I'm just going to go out and enjoy it for what it is. I, I like post-apocalyptic kind of stuff. So yeah, good. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I, but I did hear recently that they actually had a really troubled production. I just heard rumors about that this week. So I don't know if that has been out there for a long time and that's, why people are worried but um i saw an interview with the filmmaker at comic-con he seemed thrilled about it and he said that stephen king gave him a big thumbs up and i don't know he seemed like he was having a great time so excellent uh, well i'm happy that's to hear a public that. face or what yeah well, what say you dr shock um i have not seen the trailer i'm avoiding it so i'm hopeful okay have you read the the book series on this no okay well, we on Movie Podcast Network, right, guys, we have a, a special features episode where those who have read the series and they're really hardcore fans into it, they discuss it in depth here, and that's going to be out any day now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Matroid led the discussion of those who have read the book over on our patrons feed, so if you want to hear that, you can become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for the low, low price of $2.50, and you can hear that episode, as well as all of our other cool special features episodes, but then I've also heard on GeekCast Live, Ryan said they got Stephen King's go-to chronicler coming on the show, Ben Vincent. He writes all of the Dark Tower companion books, and he's going to give them his review of the Dark Tower movie, and he'll share it as soon as possible. So that may be up by now. Yeah, Probably is. yeah, absolutely. I think it'll release on um, a Saturday. What is that? August fifth, I think, is when that comes out. So that's exciting. Yeah, that, that'll yeah. be oh, long since be out when this releases. That's great. 
Okay. So, and then the final note before we get into the feature review here of ours, there is a Dark Tower TV series based on Wizard and Glass, right? So I don't know anything else about it, but for those Dark Tower fans out there, I'm sure you're all aware of that. But anyway, let's move at this point into our feature review of the Dark Tower. For thousands of generations, the gunslingers were knights. Sworn to protect us from the coming of the dark. Okay, and at this point in episode 125 of Horror Movie Podcast, right now it's just Wolfman Josh and me. Here's the thing, we've got uh, quite a bit of disclaimers to put out there for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope, and maybe they don't respect us at all, I'm sure they'll let us know. But I hope that the fact that we are pretty open about our limitations sometimes, I think that we, we're pretty honest about that usually. Yeah. I hope that they cut us a little bit of slack. So Josh and I have been discussing this. Dave didn't get a chance to see this yet, so he's not with us on this particular recording. And Joel wasn't able to join us. That's true. Joel wasn't either, unfortunately. I don't believe either of those guys have gotten to see it yet, though they're looking forward to it. Josh and I have not read the Dark Tower book series. Okay, so that's the first thing that we need to say up front. We don't have that uh, particular experience at this time. Maybe one day, I assume, are you planning to read those someday, Josh? It seems like something you might do. You know, based on what I've learned about the Dark Tower since the film, since seeing the film, I actually am more interested because, as we'll get into later, kind of the different worlds that are <laughs> surrounding the tower. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to talk about it. I apologize to the Stephen King fans are just sloppy <laughs> in their foreheads. <laughs> Essentially all of the Stephen King's stories can be found within that those realms. Yes. And so I love that this is the connective tissue to that. And I actually I saw this really cool graphic that shows how the entire Stephen King multiverse is connected. And the dark towers at the center of all of it. Yes, so that true. makes me interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd have been more interested had this movie been really great. <laughs> okay. But I think, but I will say that, um, you know, they initially, when they set this up, they couldn't decide whether they were going to do it as a series or a film. And I believe they decided they would do both and then possibly have films between seasons of the series. I don't know if that's true, but whatever the case is, maybe they did announce that they will still be doing the series and Idris Elba will still be starring in the series. Okay. So I'm actually, I mean, I would say that this caught my attention enough to watch that. And then based on that experience, I'll probably uh, break down and read the books, but you know, I mean, yeah, I, I know that a lot of Stephen King fans are, are big fans of the dark tower that it's, you know, considered one of his greatest works. I think just for me, it is more in the fantasy realm and less in the horror realm. And so that makes Mm -hmm. me less interested off the bat. Yeah. And that's exactly a lot of things you said there were great. And I'm going to try to chime in and remember like, like, first of all, I agree with you. Uh, I guess we had anticipated doing this big feature review of this because not having much experience or knowledge of the Dark Tower, I thought it was going to be a little more horror-based. And it, this this film itself, it had a couple of, what would you say, two minutes of, like, monsters in it? <laughs> if, you, <laughs> sure. if, you, if you don't count the antagonist as a monster, quote-unquote. But um, there are some monsters in it, which I think are 
kind of cool, and I really enjoyed that aspect. And apparently in the book series, this whole monster realm is another aspect, but it just didn't come through as much in this. Like for me, if, you know, categorizing this, Josh, this is like a, a much to my surprise, young adult <laughs> fantasy science fiction western with some thriller elements. <laughs> I've heard fans of the book saying that this should have been rated R mm-hmm. and yeah. I think that probably would have added a lot to not make it feel like young adult. I also think like I feel like it should have been based on the gunslinger and right. not on the, the little boy. Yes. I think that's a mistake. Um and I think those two things could have made it feel a little more adult and sophisticated and I would have appreciated that. But I you know, I it feels like Stephen King still to me. And so I, I like that element of it. It has kind of the fanciful Stranger Things kind of vibe. I think, you know, it's got the paranormal in it. So, yeah, the monsters are only there for a brief moment. But there is some paranormal kind of soul-stealing kind of stuff going on. There's the shine, you know, the mm-hmm. touch, the shining, as it were, yes, um, playing a role in that. And I just wish they would have played that stuff up more because that could have been really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you're right. I mean, they they do, I guess, in the book series, I'm told. And again, people are slapping their heads <laughs> to hear us talk about this. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, the, the Roland Deschain, the gunslinger, he is the main character. But the way this film is situated, uh, the, the boy, what is it? Jake, Jake Chambers, played by Tom Taylor. He's the lead character. Yeah, and it does, it feels like... It feels kind of like Divergent or The Hunger Games. It's got that, you know, the Maze Runner. It's, it's got a little bit of that. But, Josh, let me just say, since we've already stated explicitly that this isn't much of a horror film, all that said, I was not excited, as I said earlier in this particular show, about this, given the trailers, what I saw in the trailers. But I actually enjoyed myself. And, it's, and it seems, from everything I've heard, the people who have read the book series... They, they think this film is an abomination. They hate and detest it. I haven't, I haven't encountered anybody personally that read the books that like this film. But, but it seems to me that for people who didn't read the books and they saw it, they're like, yeah, that's, that's pretty entertaining. And that's how I felt about it. Fine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's generally what I've heard too. I think this has been just lambasted by fans of the books <laughs> and yes. that's happening right here on movie podcast network. I know, uh, Matroid joined the geek cast live folks to just <laughs> run. <laughs> what is it called? <laughs> Rough shot over this, oh, yeah. over this film. Um, they're going to go nuts on it. Yeah. There's no so, doubt. And we had, uh, we had cartoon Joe join us on movie podcast weekly with Ryan. See Ryan and Matroid, they were so upset about this in our texting conversations that I actually felt really bad for them. It made me sad about like how disappointed they were because they were they were devastated by it initially, I think. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, as long as I've known Matt, he's been talking about the Dark Tower. It, it's his favorite thing. He's got Dark Tower tattoos, you know? Yeah. So he, 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 lo- he loves this thing. And I know that a lot of fans do. You know, they've been waiting so long to see it. J.J. Abrams was going to uh, adapt this at one point and then said, no, it's unadaptable. Ron Howard was going to adapt it at one point and said, no, it's unadaptable. And I think Ron Howard still got a credit on this film as a producer, but I don't think he actually worked on it. Right. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the television series would really have been the way to go because I think this film has a lot of the problems that I had with The Mummy where it feels at once rushed and laborious. And I think that's something we see a lot more with films in the last year or two where it seems like the studios, maybe, I'm just, I'm blaming the studios. I don't know why, but it feels like a studio <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Where it's like, this needs to be faster. This needs to be more fast paced. And so they're going and going and going and going, but there's no character. There's no meaning. And what Stephen King does so well is character and meaning. And mm-hmm. so when you strip a film of, of the, of character arcs, you know, I mean, the, the main boy here, Jake, he doesn't have a character arc he you know he's the main character so what are, what are we to do what are we <laughs> to, what are we to latch on to i mean i really liked a lot of the performance i mean i think idris elba is incredible in the yes. film. he does a great job Nails but it. The, but there's not chemistry between these characters you know there's not mm-hmm. a lot going on like i just didn't i just didn't feel i love matthew mcconaughey but i don't think this is is peak matthew mcconaughey this is not a great matthew mcconaughey in my opinion and i just uh, right. something's not clicking here and i think part of that is just not taking the time you know there's so many elements here that you can tell you know when you re- when you watch a movie that's based on a book and you can just tell like i can tell this means something and if i'd read the book i'd know what this is but <laughs> yes. if i haven't read the book i have no <laughs> idea what this is yes. there were so many moments like that in this film mm-hmm and if you had a film, if you'd had a television series, you'd have time to explain all of those things to the audience, just like they do in a book. Um, and they right. just can't do that in a film. And especially we should mention this film is a sequel, as I understand it, to the books slash adaptation. So they're taking elements from all eight books, um, but it, it, it kind of takes place after the eighth book, as I understand it. So, yeah, that's what I've heard, too. But and so that's a weird choice because you have these beloved properties. Why not just adapt the first one? Well, that's yeah, what that's exactly what I was going to ask you. So two points here. Number one, I agree with you about this would have been more appropriately done with a TV series, but not like network TV, something like an HBO where you could Absolutely. do it, you know, like R rated type style. But well, and Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey both have a strong history at HBO. You know, mm-hmm. that would be awesome to see them. Yes. In that kind of situation. Yeah. So I, and agree. a show about them with the grit of the wire and true detective, you know? So Josh, here's what I'm dying to ask you because of your experience in the film industry, I asked this on Movie Podcast Weekly. We we had some theories, but I'd love to hear your theory. So what you were talking about there, you know, when, when Ryan kind of went over like this this film on our show over there and he said, yeah, it's a little bit from this book, from this book and this book, which like, as you said, it pieces together these little moments and aspects of all the books. It's like they had a property here that I think was a sure bet, sure fire. I mean, we, we've seen what they're doing like with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC's trying to follow suit and Star Wars has this epic saga that's going to go on forever. And they had this here in their hands. Why would they just make one film that kind of like blows everything in the first <laughs> outing yeah. when it could have been an, an incredible movie series? Like what, what are your For theories? Years. Yeah, it's been 20 movies based on eight books. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think this is the biggest problem I see with these expanded universe, you know, studio films is that they don't just do the character. Just I mean, there's such a rich history in comic books and in novels of all the end and the universal classic horror films and all these things are adapting the stuff, is you know, all everything they need is there. Mm-hmm. All they need to do is modernize it a bit for for modern eyes and ears. And they and they really they've got 
all of the goods are already there. We know it works. You when, know, it's established that it works. But they don't just do Spider-Man. They make, you know, uh, they've made they made one, two, three, four, five Spider-Man movies, two of which were okay, and the rest were pretty bad. And then they finally just make a new Spider-Man movie, and they do Spider-Man, and it's like, oh yeah, that was great. You know why? It reminds me of Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, like why yes. Not? Yes. You know, they, why do why do GI Joe movies if you don't make it recognizable to GI Joe audiences? Why make Universal Monster movies if they're not recognizable to Universal Monsters fans? And I say the same thing about the Dark Universe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sorry, the Dark Tower. I think for for me, like you, not knowing the books, it was fine. It was decent. I, I like it as much as I like the Maze Runner. I like the Maze Runner. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm never gonna watch it again. Right. But I enjoyed myself. <laughs> exactly. The yeah, one time watch. <laughs> this thing yeah but at the same time like yeah this means so much to so many people you really have a property that could generate so much money and so much great art and content i just don't get it i mean i don't get this approach and i think to me as we talked about on the previous episode i think it's fear-based i think there is a fear to commit to the material and i think that's a huge mistake because the material has been proven to work it's a best-selling book series from one of the highest selling authors of all time. Right. Just, and he's got a huge audience. Just trust that he knows what he's doing, you know? And well, well let me get your opinion on something else. Cause this is something that Ryan said that really kind of troubled me actually. Mm-hmm. So upon seeing the movie trailers for this film, th- now this sounds very nefarious. Ryan said that when he saw the trailers, from what he could tell just by looking at the trailers, it looked like they were going to do it right. And he's like, hey, they're going to do the Dark Tower. They're doing it. And yeah. so that tells me, and it and Ryan agrees, that, that you know they knew what they were doing with this whole bait and switch where, hey, let's just get all of all of the fans of this property, this, this intellectual property, let's get all the fans into the theater. And then, you know, from there let the chips fall where they may but at least we got our box office and actually they didn't because it's only 19 million but i'm just saying do you think i mean is it really this slimy josh where i I don't believe that i don't i mean i don't i would on one hand i wouldn't put it past them but i would just i just think if they know if they knew what it was they were going for why wouldn't they have just put it in the film i mean i do believe that the director is a fan of the books. I have heard him interviewed a couple of times. He seems very passionate about this mm-hmm. story and about Stephen King in general. And so I believe that he had good intentions going in. I've heard that there were all kinds of clashes behind the scenes that, um, you know, about what the film should be. And so I think that there was a, a difference of opinion between the filmmakers and the studio of what it needed to be. And that there's potentially a, a much longer version of this film, which it's a very short running time for how much is crammed into this film. Mm -hmm. Again, like the mummy it's just packed with scenes and mythology that there's no time given to really suss out and appreciate, you know? And so I, I don't know. I, I feel like it feels to me like this was the cut down version that again, I don't, I probably shouldn't blame the studio having absolutely zero knowledge of it. It's just what it feels like from an outsider's perspective. Okay. So yeah, you could, you could very well be right. Then it may have been that this passionate director who knows and loves the property kind of had his hands tied and maybe he did the best he could yeah. Maybe, maybe, and, but and he might not be just experienced enough a director to 
handle something this big, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yes. this is a big film. It's not a, as big a budget as it looks like it would be or should be, but you know, he hasn't done very much work and, and nothing on the scale. And so it's, it's a very big property to be handling the Idris Elba thing. You know, you talk about bringing in the audience for the book again, I think he's the best part of the movie. Yes. yes. But if you're trying to bring in fans of the book, we know that there were a lot of people out there complaining that he didn't look the way that they wished this character had looked. And although I don't personally care about that, probably probably because I'm not a fan of the book and I'm pro diversity, but, and, you know, and also just the best actor. Like I think I just was excellent, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have an issue with that myself, right? but I can imagine that, if this was a property I've been waiting for, for 20 years, I might care a little bit about how the characters looked and actually maybe it didn't draw in the, that audience because it didn't look like their gunslinger or whatever. So I don't mm. know. Well, don't you, know. you talked about how it was um, cut down. I, I, I learned from Ryan and I'm sorry to be regurgitating everything over here, but I think it, it lends to our conversation that the original version of this, like initially it was like three and a half hours or something like that. And they cut it down to like 95 minutes. Um, mm. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you think that's kind of visible in the film itself? Yeah, that's Can, exactly what it feels like. Okay. Yeah. I, I like the cast. I mean, the, I think Frank crowns or whatever, however you pronounce his name from uh, cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. I liked him in this Dennis Haysbert. I always like, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, I always like, of course, but I just didn't feel it didn't really mesh. Just something was just missing, you know. It was missing that magical ingredient. But again, it wasn't bad to me. No. Like I, I, this has like an eighteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which again, <laughs> I quoted every show, and then every show I say, "Who cares about Rotten Tomatoes?" But from the <laughs> critics, the critics gave it an eighteen percent. The fans gave it a sixty-one percent, right? And then mm. on IMDb, it's got a six out of ten from I on IMDb. Right. So I I don't think the general viewership is as crushed about this as fans of the books are and as are as critical as, as the film critics are agreed, but, um, but it's still not great. <laughs> well, that that's true, but I'll tell you what, cause yeah, it's not necessarily my cup of tea cause I'm not a big fantasy guy or young adult. Like, but I will say this, I got to give the film credit for one thing being, being someone who is just completely on the outside I, I knew almost nothing about the Dark Tower going in. Um, I really think the film does a good job with pulling in people through the story. And, and may, yes, it's not the story that's found in the series exactly, but through the story that they're trying to tell here in this 95-minute film, I did not feel lost. And, and this is kind of a fantastical universe here. And I, I just, you know, I... I think yeah. the exposition and everything, it just pulled me through the film and I felt like I was always oriented and kind of knew where we were going and what was happening. And so I, I give it a lot of credit for that, Josh. I, I didn't feel lost, but I didn't feel nourished. If that, You know what I mean? Like I mm. didn't feel like I was getting much out of any of these scenes. You know, I just felt like it was just like scene, scene, scene. There's one great scene where he's, where he's teaching him how to shoot. He's teaching him to be a gunslinger. The uh, the scene with uh, Idris oh, yeah. Elba and, yeah. and, uh, and Jake. That's like the one good scene, and it's the scene where they're just sitting there talking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, the, like, and that's and that's what they need. These types of films need more of. I think is just let these characters breathe and talk, and and let us sit in the world for a minute. And you know, I I 
I did the same thing. I love I liked the mummy more than most people, but I had a lot of similar issues as I did with this film because I never felt lost in that movie. But I also just it feels superficial because it doesn't like dig that level deeper to really know these people to feel like you really get a lot out of this world. So I, I wanted more. Um, and I, and I'm, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here to some degree because I know that we don't have a fan of the books here. So I'm kind of trying to be a little bit harder on it to like maybe represent that point of view, Mm -hmm. but, um, I'm not saying anything false there that I don't believe, but you know, I'm probably hitting the nail on the head a little bit harder than I would normally. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a disappointment. I, I think it did interest me enough that if they did make this into an HBO series, I'd watch it and yeah, just check it out, you know, sure. and I want to see more of the monsters and more of that kind of element. And then when you see this, I really start feeling that stranger things vibe of, okay, that's where all these things and stranger things came from. were from the dark tower. I mean, I knew that there were a lot of other Stephen King isms in the film, in that show, mm-hmm. but you re- this really, the mythology of this world really is far reaching. As I mentioned, it kind of touches a lot of the other stories of Stephen King and it especially. So I'm looking forward to talking about it in October and seeing how, I mean, these were different, film studios that are producing the films, but it feels like they're connected, you know, and especially there's the Pennywise moment in this film. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, and, and those monsters are the Pennywise monster essentially. Right. So I don't know. Did you know that? I mean, they probably, probably talked about that with Ryan or whatever, but yeah, we didn't really go into that, but yeah, you're right. But those monsters that they show in this film are what Pennywise is. Mm -hmm. And so, that's exciting to me. And so I, I think there's potential for a lot more horror in the continuation of the story. And, um, and uh, yeah, and also connection to these other films. So I know we've said it earlier in this episode, but just side note there. So we're, so listeners know we're going to be doing, um, coverage of the original it, and then, you know, this first part of it that's coming out here in September and that's coming up very soon. So I hope everybody will revisit, you know, it and watch the film and chat about it with us. But but no, I got a prediction about this, Josh. My I, apologies. I said October. but n- yes. No sweat. No sweat. Now, I, I was thinking on this. It, it seems like and I guess it kind of depends on what happens with the TV series, uh, you know, with what they do with that. Um but I think that depending on how that goes, I think this will be one of those re reboot type situations, like within a, a few mm-hmm. years. I think somebody will look at this and say, okay, that was a huge mistake. Why don't we just do this right for these people and make a ton of money and, and, mm-hmm. and figure it out? So I, I'm really hoping that maybe that happens like for the, the cinematic version because you know, I like the TV series idea, but man, if they could do this into a, cause I'm a film guy. So a film franchise and they reboot it kind of like they've tried with Spider-Man a few times. I, I, you know, maybe that'll happen. I'm, I'm still hopeful about that. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you saw that trailer for the castle rock show, but that also shows how it's going to not only cover the stories that happen in castle rock and some of these characters that happen in castle rock, but it stretches into other areas of the Stephen King universe like Derry. And so I don't know. I think, um, I think that there's a chance that we're going to see just kind of this bigger version of, of a Stephen King universe than we've seen before. And again, it might not be 
exactly connected by a studio, but I feel like even if, you know, the studios are making the films, I feel like these filmmakers are reaching out to each other a little bit, you know, like if you watch that castle rock, like a little teaser, you get the feeling like it's saying like, Hey, we're part of this thing that's going on too. And the inclusion of the Pennywise moment in this film just felt like, just kind of felt like a tip of the hat, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, that's exciting, actually. I I dig that, too. The monster elements, I just want to emphasize that one more time before we you know go into ratings and stuff. But, yeah, even though this is not a horror film to me, mm-hmm. even though it does have some dark themes, I did love the monster moment. So I'm I'm glad. It, like we said, it's only like, what, two, like two minutes or less in this particular movie, but still. Anyways, Josh, I had a good time at the theater. I, I had very low expectations. I thought this thing was going to be terrible. I was not looking forward to it at all, even though I was kind of hopeful that it was going to be good. And um, even though it's like young adult fantasy, Western sci-fi <laughs> thriller elements, I actually gave it a 7.5 out of 10 and I called it a rental. And that's for people who have not read the books. Um, I, apparently, people who have read the book series despise it but what do you say wolfman <laughs> i'm right there with you. I, I would say a six and call it a rental i, I thought it was enjoyable and I, I think you're right that i would like to see this done properly cinematically if anything else just for our, our brothers and sisters and the stephen king fandom mm-hmm. so they can get the movie that they want but you know i think i can imagine a series doing really well and they've again they, just from the very outset they talked about possibly transitioning between season of the series and then in a film. And so if this series turns out to be really great, maybe we'll get a better film on the next go around. All right. We can only hope. So listeners, uh, you know, we, we realized that this was probably not the review that you were hoping for and maybe not the film you were hoping for, but let us know in the show notes for episode (laughs) 125, what you thought of the dark tower. So guys, uh, that was our Dark Tower review. Hope everyone enjoyed it and let us know in the show notes what you thought about the film. We just have a couple more things that are on the uh, Stephen King docket, at least. Later this year, of course, in September, we have uh, 2017, we have It Part 1, The Losers Club. We're pretty pumped about that. We're going to be doing a Versus episode where we review the original It and then the Part 1, which will be exciting. You guys looking forward to that? I, I think the trailer looks fantastic for that. Yeah. Definitely. Looks incredible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's also been the Stephen King series of the mess that Joel referenced, and that's been a big deal. And then they are doing a new one called Castle Rock. And there's also a mini series that's not horror based on the John F. Kennedy assassination uh, that the King wrote. I don't remember the date. 11, 1163. 11, 11, 22, 63. Yeah. There you go. Mm hmm. Those were all a big deal this last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then also in 2017, you got Children of the Corn Runaway, right? So I think Dr. Shock makes... Number 10! Yeah, Dr. Shock makes a cameo appearance in that film. Um, Children of the Corn (laughs) Runaway? Yes. Yes, I I would pay for that. I really would. And then there's something called Gerald's Game in 2017. I'm unfamiliar with this. As well as 1922. Also unfamiliar with that, sorry. And then next year, in 2018, we're supposed to get It Part 2, Pennywise. I'll tell you something about Gerald's Game. Tell it. Directed by Mike Flanagan. Oh. Stars Henry Thomas, Bruce Greenwood, Carla Gugino, Kate Siegel. Now you're talking. We like Mike Flanagan around here. 
I like Carla. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Mike Flanagan, I've loved him ever since Absentia. But yeah, he did mm-hmm. Oculus, Hush, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Some yeah. people say Ouija. But anyways, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't want to offend uh, those people. 1922 was another Thomas Jane entry into his Stephen King filmography. So yeah, there you go. All right. Well, I wonder if Joel will hate the ending on that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Joel's going to go after him. All right, and at this point in episode 125 of Horror Movie Podcast, we are going to bring you our top five favorite horror adaptations of Stephen King works. Now, guys, we wanted to emphasize that these are our personal favorite picks. We're not saying these are the greatest versions of adaptations, right? Because we might not have pretty boring, pretty similar lists, right? I mean, yeah, I think it's easy to say, kind of point out as, as, you know, cinephiles, which are the most technically proficient and best made films. And so I, I kind of didn't want to go down that road for myself. I, I kind of wanted to speak to the ones that spoke to me, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Okay. So here's what we're going to do listeners. We're going to count backwards from number five to number one, one being our all time favorite, of course. And then um, guys, I couldn't help it. I had two honorable mentions. I was trying to keep it down to five, but I could not live with myself or even sleep at night if I didn't mention these seven films that I'm going to mention total. So I hope everybody could forgive me for that. But anyway, here's here's my, here's my number five. I'll kick it off. Number five, seriously, my all-time favorite vampire film. I said it already. Salem's Lot from 1979. That's my number five. Okay. What do you got, Wolfman, for number five? Well, I'm a wolf man, so Silver Bullet is my number five. <laughs> I like it quite a bit. You know, it's not The Shining, but it's uh, one that I return to quite often and really enjoy. And it's goofy. And it was also one of those that was important to me in my childhood. So that carries a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. You said carry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> sorry. I, was, I had my Coca-Cola, so I'm kind of annoying right now. Um, Dr. Shock, what's your number five? <laughs> Um, my number five is the movie I covered in part one, Christine. Oh, nice. nice. Uh, one I, I saw plenty of times on, on cable, and, and I always I always sat down and watched it whenever it was on, and I can still watch it this day. I just, I, I have a, I, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Not Again, I'm not a big, big into scary cars, but there's a lot more to that movie <laughs> than that. Dave says, you keep on knocking, but you can't come in, right? <laughs> All right. right. I love it. I, right. I, I guess. Okay, here's my number four, and I'm telling everybody right now, this is a horror film. If this isn't a horror film to you, then uh, let's put you in this situation and see how you feel. It is Misery from 1990. Absolutely horrifying. Could happen in real life. Yeah, absolutely. we've, We've heard about very scary fandom and that going south, and it's extremely upsetting. Okay, that's my number four. Uh, Wolfman, what's your number four? My number four is Salem's Lot. Your number five. So it looks like we're getting a little more crossover than I would anticipate it, even with this setup. But that's okay. At least we're <laughs> being true to ourselves. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. I love it. And, and plus, one more thing about Salem's Lot. And I don't know if we... I, we've mentioned this in previous shows before. I don't know if we mentioned it this time around. But the, the apparent props 
and, and tribute to Nosferatu, right? I, I mean that that whole you know, mm-hmm. the master, the way he looked. I mean that's just incredible. Okay, so and if Absolutely. people want to find our full review of Salem's Lot, that is on the Feral Vampires episode number eleven of Horror Movie Podcast. You can find it at the website horrormoviepodcast.com. Yes. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Shock, what is your number four favorite? My number four is Ending and All, The Mist. (laughs) (laughs) Little dig at Joel. I love it. Great Yeah, Joel's not here to to defend himself, so I can't really do that. But yeah, this one is just, um, I think this is, well, slight spoilers. This is probably the most recent um, uh, Stephen King uh, adaptation. Well, it's definitely the one on my list. But of all of the the recent ones, I think this one's like far and away. And it's not even that recent. I guess it's 10 years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's still, it's just really strong. And um, yeah, I I, I think it's, uh, I I don't have as much problem with the ending as Joel did. I understood what he was saying. I I could see where he was coming from. How Um, could anyone have as much problem with the ending as Joel did? Well, that's true. (laughs) That's a lot of problem to have. I know. That is a lot of problem to have. He's very passionate about that situation. He he was. He was very passionate. Like I said, I saw where he was coming from, but it just didn't bother me as much. So, uh, yeah, number four, The Mist. And remember, people, if you haven't seen The Mist, or even if you have seen it, make sure you check out the black and white version as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have to say, I have still have not seen that. So I picked the mist uh, based Damn on the it. color version. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, here is my uh, number three. And to me, this is the scariest horror film that I know. I have not seen one that has scared me more in this. Of all the horror films I can think of, aside from like a cheater version like Cabin in the Woods, which is not, that's not really cheating, but I'm just saying within an organic type of horror story that's not Cabin in the Woods, this film has more different sorts of horror elements than any other, and it is Pet Cemetery from 1989. I still say Zelda is the scariest thing I can even imagine. (laughs) Okay, Wolfman, what's your number three? My number three, I had a really hard time deciding on, but ultimately I went with The Dead Zone. I think it's uh, one of the underappreciated Stephen King films. It's just bonkers, and you take (laughs) Stephen King's weirdness and you mix that with Chris Watkins' weirdness, and (laughs) you just get something very special. So Yes, almost cancels each other out. Yeah. Well, you you got Cronenberg in the mix too, so it really That's can't true. get weirder than that. But yeah, I, <laughs> I I really appreciate the Dead Zone. It it almost didn't make this list, but but I I ultimately stuck it in there. So I, I'm nice. glad you included that. That's great. Okay, Doctor Shock, what's your number three? Oh, this is talking crossover. My number three was Pet Cemetery, uh, and and I came to this one very late. Um, I had just had seen this one not too long ago, but it, like you're saying, Jay, it, it, there's just a lot in this movie that, uh, that mm-hmm. gets to you and, you know, not just the cemetery you're talking about, you know, that was a Zelda. Yeah. Oh, Zelda. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, there's a lot, there's a lot in this film and boy, it, it gets crazy at the end. Um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie and i think uh it's just going to get better uh each time i say it 
let me just say one more thing about this since we're on it, Dr. Shock. When I see mm-hmm. each time, I've seen Pet Cemetery now probably seven times total, okay? It, mm-hmm. It's very hard for me to watch it each time, to be honest with you. And after I watch it, I, I have the same reaction that I have to like Cannibal Holocaust or something of that nature where I feel like mm. something is kind of broken inside of me wow. and I have to just be quiet like I'm just I'm very like disquieted and just I have a lot of unrest after I watch that film it's understandable mm-hmm. so Josh we gotta we gotta review that again and and have you um, look at it again because I'm really interested in talking to you about it so, mm-hmm. so anyways okay what is let's see that was docs number three okay so we're down to number two I realize this is not um, a super faithful adaptation, but it is one of the few true horror masterpieces, The Shining from 1980. That film is very scary. Absolutely. Okay, Wolfman, what's your number two? Mine is not a horror masterpiece, but I love it anyway. If I could have included Stand By Me on this list, I would have, but we're sticking with horror. So I went with the horror version of Stand By Me, which is it. And I just, I love that 1990 miniseries. I know it's not popular. I know that a lot of people hate this miniseries. I appreciate it for what it is. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I really have I had a good time watching this as a kid. And I, you know, on my last rewatch, I still enjoyed it quite a bit. So I've, I, of course, like everyone else, I'm hoping for a better adaptation with the the new one coming up. But, you know, I like this one. Nice. I'm glad you picked that. It warms the cockles of my heart. (laughs) And terrifies me at the same time, which is, you know, what else can you ask for? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Exactly. Okay, Dr. Shock, what's your number two? My number two is uh, Salem's Lot, which I think is definitely... Up there, like you were saying, with Nosferatu, mm-hmm. but it's probably the scariest vampire film I, I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I've seen scam- vampire films that have scenes that are pretty intense and very scary. Mm-hmm. But this one, it's just building and building and building, and it just gets worse. And every time I, I post something on Twitter, I always get a response of, that kid at the window. I mean, almost every time I say something about Salem's lot, right. Somebody will respond saying that kid at the window still scares me to this day. And, and it does. It absolutely does. And, and I'm scared so, right now, honestly, yeah, I'm right. talking about the kid and I'm, I'm sitting in front of these two giant windows and it's pitch black outside. I can't see out the windows. Ooh. And I, all I can think about Don't just, just, just that, just that scratch. Yeah. Scratch, <laughs> scratch, you know? Wow. I mean, yeah, and and that's not even it. I mean, the, the jump scare, the the, the some scenes that get forgotten about, like when he's in the morgue and and that and that one starts to move and yes. he's trying to make the cross and, and get this thing to the point that it's right. actually going to do some damage. And, and there's so so many scenes in this. And what about when you know who is sitting in the rocking chair? Oh yeah! Oh man, that's very, very creepy to me. Like very creepy, very creepy. Yes, Salem. Yeah, this is an incredibly, incredibly unsettling movie. Yes, the first part of it is is very, um, you know, the character driven and and sort of building the town and the stories and whatnot. But man, that second half, yeah, it's it's incredible. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, that was number two. Now we're down to our number one. Do you guys do you guys know what my number one is? I think so. 
Do you? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I know what it is because it's your number three horror movie of all time. <laughs> Thank you. Right? You are my true friends. I love you guys. My number one all-time favorite Stephen King horror adaptation also happens to be the very best siege narrative, and that is Cujo from 1983. I freaking love this movie. Nice. <sighs> Amazing. Okay, Wolfman Josh, what's your number one favorite? So this would make my top 20 list of my all-time favorite movies of all genres, not just Stephen King adaptations. So it was a no-brainer for me at number one. If we were doing like a Desert Island movie pick, this would definitely be in my top 20 for sure. <laughs> it's uh, it's Misery. I love this movie. Yes. I, I just It's one of my favorite things to look at in life. So Nice. Yeah. I bet you. And that would be an interesting film to have on a desert island, actually. Yeah, it would cool set, you off. You'd yeah, be like, oh. <laughs> exactly. Set in snow. It, like, at least I'm not there. You know, like misery is such a relief. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. And Doctor Shock, what is your number one favorite Stephen King horror adaptation? My number one favorite Stephen King horror adaptation is The Shining. Um, just like you're saying, it is a masterpiece uh, in 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 a lot of ways. Um, the music, the, just the, 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 the over a uh, mood again, this is what I go back to, like with, with Salem's lot and pet cemetery, or there's just this, 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 this tone about it, just this doom that's just hanging over everything. And it's and the little boy talking to himself, you know, with, with, um, the mm. little kid and lives in his mouth and <laughs> telling him that he's got to be careful and, and <laughs> just everything. You know, and the red rum and everything about the movie, it just builds to a to to a point. Um, and yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, it's interesting because I was watching uh, I don't know I was watching something about Kubrick not too long ago, and it was Steven Spielberg who actually became very good friends with Kubrick, mm-hmm. and they were talking about The Shining, and and he you know Kubrick said, well, what did you think of you know the movie, and Spielberg said, I didn't think much of it the first time I saw it. He said, now I love it. But I kept going back to, you know, and I, I was going around it. And and Kubrick picked right up what he said. It doesn't sound like you like the movie. And he said, well, what was it? He goes, well, he thought that Jack Nicholson went a little over the top with his performance. And I thought Kubrick's response was very interesting. He says, real quick, without thinking about it, who are your five favorite actors? And Spielberg was saying, uh, who is this? You know, like Spencer Tracy and you know, Clark Gable, Cary Grant, whatever. And then he said, I, and then uh, what is um, Kubrick goes, I know she didn't say James Cagney there. And, and Spielberg's like, well, no, not, but I mean, he'd be up there. And Kubrick goes, well, I think James Cagney is one of the, one of the top actors of all times. And based on that, that's why I think that's what he was almost looking at saying that justifying Jack Nicholson's performance yeah. in The Shining, yeah. you know, based on, based on something like Cagney. So I thought that was very interesting and, and i guess you could make an argument that okay well maybe nicholson does go over the top but it does fit that character oh perfectly. Yeah. i i think that his over the topness just demonstrates and illustrates the insanity per personally the the, the, loot, the the cracking of the mind yeah, yeah 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 i think it's right on the money I, I do want to give one disclaimer i and i didn't want to mention this beforehand because i didn't want to spoil our list but i i I didn't allow myself to put the shining on my top five just because I, it, it was just too obvious for me. I just like, okay, what just as an exercise for myself, what if I don't put the shining in there? So I actually, I couldn't get below a top nine, 
when I put the shining on my list. And then when I, when I took it out, I, I, it, it very quickly became a top 10. And, uh, and so, you know, the shining at the, at the honorary head of the list at 11, I, I suppose, but, um, okay. my honorable mentions are five. If I don't, if you don't mind me rattling them off really go, quick, go for again, it. Go for again, it. minus the shining, uh, okay. The ones that almost made the list were The Mist and The Night Flyer. I also have a, a fascination and deep love for 1408 and Secret Window. And Storm of the Century is my biggest guilty pleasure of all Stephen King films. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just dovetail right into yours there. My two honorable mentions that I could not leave off this list mentioning is The Mist from 2007. And Josh, Storm of the Century 1999 delivers yes. the goods. You know um, it, brother. That's that's one of our favorite films mutually, I think. Okay, and uh, what about you, Dr. Shock? What are your honorable uh, mentions? I actually, ha- I have three. Um, mm-hmm. I have Misery and Cujo, both of which have been mentioned, but then I also have Carrie, Ooh. which oh, I don't yeah. know has gotten a mention. So, um, yeah, those would be my three honorable mentions. And I assume yeah. you mean the uh, Sissy Spacek Carrie, right, from 76? You are, you are correct, <laughs> okay, sir. gotcha. Yes. <laughs> I, I also didn't decided to not include that on my list because I, I kind of feel like if I was talking technical proficiency, those would have probably been my top two or the shining and Carrie Cause they really are probably the best made Stephen mm-hmm. King films in my opinion, in mm-hmm. terms of just technical prowess. But yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay. That's why I give the, I wanted to give the disclaimer a favorite cause I just wanted to kind of kick those out of, out of the running. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because no one, do you think, do you think the mist would fit on that as well? I mean, I, I thought think, that was yeah. very, I very, so. very well made. Darabont did, a, I thought, a great job with with that. Um, and with Joel not, not being here to get on us about the ending. I think he <laughs> he did an excellent job uh, yeah. with that movie, too. And it, honestly, I think Misery is, would be maybe in there as well. Yes. And Misery, yes. For sure. And that's Rob, Rob Reiner, too. That was, I don't know, had Reiner done anything like that prior? I mean, we know he did Stand By Me, and, right. and but I don't know if he did anything quite that intense before Misery. Hmm. So it's 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 pretty interesting that that he was able to to that he had something like that uh, yeah. in his wheelhouse. You know, he was able to pull that off. Well, clearly he loves King, so you know, he named yeah. his company Castle Rock and everything. So right, right, yes. Well, and that's interesting. So um, we've been well. First of all, I just want to say to the listeners, let us know what your top five favorites, your subjective favorites. Stephen King horror adaptations are and uh, show notes for episode 125 horror movie podcast. And uh, we got a listener feedback that I absolutely have to read. I mean, I know this episode is epically long, but you, you guys have got to hear this. This comes from Amy in Dublin, Ireland, and I'm just going to go ahead with it right now. She says, Hey guys, this might be an unusual email to receive as a review of your podcast, but I feel the need to write it. As a huge Stephen King fan, my true introduction into horror was through this gentleman. I have adored his writing from a young age to the point where I did a school report on Cujo at the age of 10. (laughs) My fear of clowns come from it. Like Jay, I can't sleep with the blinds open just in case a vampire might be at the window. The norm, really. <laughs> now, <laughs> the reason why I'm writing, it's not really as a review, but as a thank you. Okay, this is, I'm getting chills already. While I was listening to this amazing episode, I had the misfortune of finding my beautiful cat, Pishwish, lying dead next to the house. 
I came upon this scene as you had been discussing Pet Cemetery. As it's well known, oh. Judd comes across church having found the cat hit by a truck and Lewis brings him back. But as we all know, what's dead should stay dead. And in a moment of madness, I had the Lewis Creed moment. I wanted to find an Indian burial to bring her back to me. I even began singing the Ramones to myself to really go for it. Of course I didn't. Instead I cried and finally managed to pull myself together for a few hours and managed to distract my mind. How I did this was listening to you all. After listening to the end of your podcast, rather than wallow, I decided that the only way I could deal with my pain was to find something I love and focus on that. I love horror, so I re-listened to horror movie podcasts. Listening to others discussing some of my favorite movies from my favorite genre had really helped me through a difficult moment for me, so I wanted to thank you. I look forward to more episodes and part two of Stephen King movies. Keep up the amazing work. Kind regards, Amy from Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's great. Chills, guys. That's yeah. very so sad. And it's, it's I mean, yeah, it's humbling. It's awesome. Very Thank sorry you so for much. your loss, Amy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's hard. And uh, yeah. You've made this all worthwhile. So <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. I you know, I, I I tell you, I'm a big cat lover. And so when I read that, you know, I I was uh I was right there with you because yeah, I've had some sad cat experiences. I won't share them here, mm. but but uh maybe one day when we do um real life horror I can tell you a, a very upsetting cat story, but I will not do no, it at this just... juncture. <laughs> It's tough. I mean, I, I had been a dog person my whole life. My family had nothing but dogs growing up, and we got a cat right around 2001, and it passed away a couple years ago. And that hit me harder than any of the dogs, which actually had lived longer um, when I was growing up. It just hit me to the point that I don't want another pet. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was that devastating. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely there with you. I understand. Yeah, I uh, I had a a dog that was like my best friend when I was when I was younger, and when he when he died, you know, I had to go. Well, first of all, he he had become really sick, and I had to go and take him to be put to sleep. That was just miserable feeling, and then yeah. I buried him in my mom's garden. So that was uh, a rough yeah. thing to do. But yeah, that sucks. Yeah, but anyway, you know, Amy, um, I'm we're so glad that the podcast means that much to you. Speaking on behalf of everyone, um, no, but for me, yeah. I'm a big podcast guy myself, and there were times, you know, I think it's better to get out in the world and talk to real people. But there have definitely been times where I've needed to retreat to a podcast or I've been traveling abroad or been, you know, just kind of alone and needed something to get in my head. Cause I didn't want to hear my own thoughts for a while. And, right. you know, I had the podcast that I would go and listen to and it felt like I was returning home to some old friends, just, just talking. And, and so it's very meaningful to be able to be that for someone else for me, because I know how helpful mm-hmm. that's been to me in the past. Yeah. Couldn't agree Definitely. more. Mm-hmm. Okay, Josh, I, I give you the honor and the pleasure of uh, setting up this next segment. We have a great interview. Yeah, well, I've talked about it quite a bit as we've gone along. This is Matt Greenberg. He's a screenwriter. My favorite film that he wrote is, of course, Halloween H2O, which I think is the necessary ending to the sister trilogy. If you watch uh, Halloween, Halloween 2, 
Halloween H2O. That's all you need. Yep. He told us some great stories about the writing of Halloween H2O over at Universal Monsters Cast, episode three, if you guys want to check that out. He also wrote three Stephen King adaptations, which he's going to go in depth on here in a second. 1408, Mercy, based on Mama, and a Pet Cemetery remake that unfortunately never was made. So some good stories coming up here from friend of the show, Matt Greenberg. All right, we are joined now by Matt Greenberg. Matt, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Matt was a juror on our Horror Cinema Awards uh, back at the beginning of the year. So thank you for for doing that for us. Um, It was a pleasure. He's also recently appeared on Universal Monsters cast. He was on episode three. We talked to him about his work in adaptation and how that might relate to uh, the Universal Monster movies that were being made and you know we've since seen the mummy and Mm -hmm. heard news about some of the others um and it was a really great conversation we talked about halloween h2o a film that you wrote uh, reign of fire Mm -hmm. and 1408 and Mm -hmm. i thought you know we're doing the stephen king episode it would be great to have matt back to talk about 1408 as well as mercy another stephen king adaptation that you wrote and then also you wrote an adaptation of pet cemetery so i would like to get into some yeah. of that stuff. So thank you again for joining us. So sure. what was the first uh, Stephen King project <laughs> you became involved with? The first one that I, that I was, and it was, it was sort of tangentially Stephen King was I helped out a friend on children of the corn three. Um, oh. And that was, that was many years ago. And it wasn't so much corn as cornmeal, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it was fun. I'd always been, I'd actually been a huge fan of the, of the original short story. So, you know, it's sort of interesting to see how far, you know, at first it's interesting to see what becomes a franchise right. and how far they'll stretch. Right. <laughs> as, as, as one friend of mine said, you know, beating his head against the wall, corn isn't scary. And it's like, well, I guess, <laughs> that, you know, on a, on an agricultural level, maybe it is. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> Have you heard of Monsanto? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh no, and dude, there was actually the, the, Monsanto wasn't wasn't actually named, but there was a there. I, and I can't remember it because it was so many years ago. There was sort of a quasi capitalist right. <laughs> kind of undertone of the whole thing. but The sequels aren't based on any Stephen King property. Um, no. They're just kind of sequels to the original film. Yeah. What was your work like on that, on that film and what was kind of your goal? Survival. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it came at me out of the blue. A friend said, I really need help on this. Can you, can you do some work on it? So they gave me the script and, you know, they had a lot of the elements down. So, and I was a young writer at the time, so I wasn't nearly as experienced with this stuff as I am now. But it was a a very quick, crazy couple weeks coming up with scary stuff about corn, and you know how scary is that? And, and then can we make it? And you know, it, it was what it was. I mean, I didn't. I confess, I never even saw the finished film, so I can't really comment on it. But, That's great. Um, no, it's, it was fun. There were good people involved in it. But <clears throat> So did you consider I, yourself a Stephen King fan at that time? Oh, my God, yes. I, I've been a Stephen King fan since I was 12 years old. I read Salem's Lot, and uh, I, I, I literally stayed up three nights in a row reading that fucking book and getting <laughs> so scared because my, my room – had a window right by my bed 
and I was freaking convinced that, you know, Danny Glick yeah. was going to show up outside that yeah. window to the point that literally, I am not kidding, I, I drew crosses on my neck. And, um, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah try that vampire. And that is amazing. It, right? So this didn't go down well with my, with my Jewish grandmother. Like, well, it's my big day. What are you going to And of course, at school, I looked like a complete freaking idiot. But, you know, I mean, but that's, that's how viscerally I reacted to Stephen King. And then after that, I absorbed everything he wrote. You know, I went back, you know, a couple of years ago and reread Salem's Lot. And I was like, you know, it, it, the thing is, is like when you see movies or you read books as a kid, you do it again as an adult and it's like, ah, this wasn't that good. But man, that still scared the piss out of me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> my wife woke up and I was drawing the freaking crosses on my neck again. <laughs> <laughs> so, and again, you know, when Corn 3 came along, I was like, wow, you know, I mean, I know it's not, you know, the original, you know, story, but, you know, it was, it was, it was really cool. And then, you know, after that, the next go around was uh, was 1408 which was a number of years later and um yeah. in that case what happened was the producer lorenzo de bonaventura called me up and you know he said i've got this stephen king story and and i don't know what to do with it do you want to give it a shot you know you want to you want to come up with a take and it wasn't set up in any place at that point and i read it and again you know it was like you know holy shit the first 30 pages. I mean, most of that story, you know, if you've read the story, is just the scene between the writer and the hotel manager. Right. Um, and it's a brilliant scene. And, it, you know, true to King's talent, what, what King is sort of a master of is taking something you've seen a million times before. You know, the guy saying, you know, let me into the haunted place. And the gatekeeper saying, no, you don't want to go into that, you know. But he... <laughs> He turns it and makes it terrifying, you know? Yeah. And, of course, the rest of the story is is sort of truncated because his experience in the room is really only a few pages. And then there's a there's a brief uh, epilogue. I mean, both of which are wonderful, but they're not particularly cinematic. Lorenzo was thinking, well, maybe that's the first act. And then they go into the room and he gets out. And, you know, they, they didn't really know what they wanted. And, you know... I was about to pass on it. I always give myself, like, 24 hours when I get a... I, I, I won't say... No, immediately. I'll always say, you know, let it sit. And so I read it, and I thought, I don't think there's a way to do this. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up, and it's like, fuck, I think I got it. <laughs> and I called him up, and I said, Lorenzo, you're going to think I'm crazy. I don't know if we can do this, but here's my pitch. You know, one man, one room, one terror, all in real time. The whole movie takes place, you know, or most of the movie takes place in that fucking room. Yeah. You know? And there was this pause, and Lorenzo, God bless him, said, this is crazy, but I like that, you know? And I said, <laughs> all right. And we went out, and we pitched it to uh, Andrew Rona and Brad Weston at uh, Dimension, and they really responded, and they took it to Bob, and, and Bob said yes. And, um, and then uh, we started, and, and uh, it was one of those, you know, blessed times, and there were very few and far between where I started writing, and I had... It, it just poured out of me, at least that first draft. Um, uh, it's, you know, so, it's so good. I, oh, I thank think you. I, I love what you did. And as you say, the short story, there's not, like, most of the film you had to create from scratch. And so... Right, I, exactly. I, I think um, you mentioned this when we talked on Universal Monsters cast. You kind of tried to put yourself into a Stephen King headspace. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you did that really effectively because it, it feels like a Stephen King piece throughout. But man, I have to, I have to hand it to you. I, I, I you know, I sometimes do you ever see a film and you're like, that guy just went on vacation to Hawaii and then wrote down every single thing that happened to him on the vacation. Like I can imagine you in a hotel room yeah. thinking like, all right, what can I do with, you know, with this? So what can I do with that? And, and, but, but, but I appreciate that cause I'm a big premise guy and we all are on, on this podcast and I really enjoy seeing you really, um, I don't want to say milk. What is the proper? Uh, you really no milk um, is good. <laughs> <laughs> you really milk every bit of that premise. You really, well, you know, use well, thank it you so well. well. Well, thank you, and 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 I appreciate your, your praise. I also have to say, you know, look, the guys who came on after me, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who yeah. both did a rewrite afterwards, with whom we shared credit. And by the way, they were great guys. It was one of those rare times where, you know, so many times when you're rewritten. You know, it's like the other writers just throw out your draft and they start again and blah, blah, blah. But these guys really, they took what I had and they ran with it. So it's like I tried to put myself in Stephen King's head and I think those guys put themselves in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And then then the director, Michael Hoster, put them in their head. (laughs) Talking about getting into Stephen King's head in the first place, you've already mentioned. So you you were a lifelong Stephen King fan, essentially. What did you do specifically Mm -hmm. when you attacked this story? That's a really good question. Um, (laughs) I remember specifically when we sold it, you know, and it was like the first thing I did was I panicked. (laughs) I was like, oh, shit, I really got to do this. (laughs) I just sort of calmed myself down and I said, look, King has done a lot of the work for you. And what you have to do is... And I'm borrowing from another writer here. I can't remember who said that, but it's a little bit like archaeology. It's it's sort of like an archaeological dig. It's like you go into the short story and you find out clues. For example, about Mike Enslin's past. And, you know, like, for example, one of the things in the short story is it makes a brief mention that he had a brother who died of leukemia or something like that. And I thought, huh, okay, now that's interesting. Interesting there. That's something. And, he, and, and King just sort of brushes it off. But it's like, no, 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 no. There's something there. And then I thought, okay, let's not make it a brother. Let's make it something more personal. Uh, well, I mean, brother's obviously personal, but let's think something so that's very wrenching, you know. And I had just become a father um, a couple of years before that. And so that's when I thought, aha, okay, he lost his daughter. And he lost his daughter through a slow, horrible process. Um, so, effective. And, so effective. And then. Yeah, and you know, and and look, you know, you always run the chance, you know, you always run the risk of, of of bordering on cliche. Oh yeah, the dead kid, blah blah blah. But it's like, no, no, no. I really started meditating on the the, the central metaphor of what this room was, you know, and so, and the two authors that really, you know, affected me most in that case was King himself and John Paul Sartre. Uh, for you know, I just went back and I looked at No Exit. And I thought, that's it. This is no exit. You know, this is, yeah. you know, this is, this is, so I'm putting my head in, in my brain. I'm getting into Stephen King's head and I'm getting into John Paul Sartre's head. And I'm going to end up speaking French and living in Maine. Right. But, you know, in the end of the day, um, it, it was, it was, um, it was something <clears throat> I'd spent a lot of time. I'd done a lot of traveling and for work and I'd spent a lot of time in hotel rooms and 
one of the things that the king, again, is a master at is the little mundane stuff. You know, it's like when you can make the everyday scary. And so one of the things I did was I went off and I checked into a hotel room in like a bad, you know, days in somewhere. You know, I I literally, those were back in the days where I would just get in a car and I would just drive, you know, I'd say to my wife, I got to go for a week. And I just pick a direction, drive, and when I got sick of driving, I'd find a hotel and I'd stay there. And I would stay up all night, just looking around and you know, and feeling the walls and thinking, my God, you know, this is this 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 hotel room, as innocuous as it is, you know, is filled with with ghosts. Like every day, there's been a new resident here, and there's something really f-ing spooky about that. You know, more than anything. You know, in, in, in trying to figure out the structure of it, I was thinking about, oh, yeah, and I've also, obviously, uh, I went and I rewatched and I reread The Shining, you know, a right. hundred times because it was, you know, th- this is sort of arguably the stepchild of, of The Shining. I mean, you know, I don't I, I don't think it approaches the brilliance of the book The Shining or, or Kubrick's film, but, This you is know, just again, in room 237, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> that's actually very much. That's very true, actually. And and how freaking scary is that? You know, yeah. that that little passage. You know, I mean, it's just it's um, it came out of that kind of thing. And one of the things I was also trying to deal with, and again, not trying to turn this into a metaphysical meditation, but you know, it was in the original drafts. There were these conversations that Enslin had. He makes a phone call and he gets a voice on the other line, and it's the management, right? And you gradually realize, oh, it's not just the management of the hotel; it's the right. management of, you know, whatever is doing it. Yeah. And it was cut from from the film, but to me, it supplied a roadmap, this kind of existential thing where where Enslin was questioning everything about his life, and essentially realize how broken he was and by the end make an effort to put himself back together you know it's funny i I can't remember if we talked about this in our last conversation but you know there's sort of two kinds of stephen king stories in my mind um largely terrifying fables with an optimistic or at least cathartic outcome you know good in one sense wins and then there are a handful where it doesn't you know, it's like, and 1408, the story arguably fell, fell into the latter category. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Enslin survives, but he is so damaged. The last few lines of that book are, or that story are, are, are very chilling on a, on a purely, not even on a, you know, boo scary level, but just on a humanistic level. You know, this is a guy who has been utterly broken. It talks about it. He can't write anymore. He can't even pick up a pencil. And that line always stood out in my head. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to go there. Um, or I don't want to end it like that. I want to get him to that point. But I want there to be at least somewhat of a catharsis because otherwise, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) I um, I was at a point in my life where, you know, and I had begun to identify so much with this character because also, you know, it's, you know, look, one of the reasons it's, it's easy to get into Mike Enslin's head 
is he's a writer, you know. Um, right. And the metaphor of the room is is also the struggles that you know we have as 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 you know as writers to create something and the craziness of our imagination and and of course the voice you know the death wish that that is always pursuing us. Right. No, I think it's interesting so, because he is in some ways broken at the beginning and yeah. this it as awful as this experience it is it kind of is the thing he needs to get his life back and yep yep that's no cool. he that, that that's very true and he he's he's broken but he doesn't know how broken he is and right. he doesn't it's like he's kind of put himself back together but it's a sham and one of the things that the that the room does is it strips away those illusions. Um, so did you? Um, yeah. Did you come up with a mythology about exactly what was happening to him in the room? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you had to come up with some kind of rhyme or reason to what was uh, the guiding your guiding principle as you made bad things happen to him. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Well, I mean, I came up with a version in my head. I didn't. I didn't spell it out. Um, right. a lot because I, I realized you know look you know there are some horror movies that they go to great lengths to spell things out and sometimes it work but mostly it doesn't and I thought with this one you know look get it in your own head first and see what seeps out you know it's like you know I had a whole history for Olin you know for the Sam Jackson character mm-hmm. um, I, and I, again I don't know if Samuel Jackson ever heard any of it or you know <laughs> just I had in my head some of the characters who had stayed and died in the room. I had little biographies for them. Mm. And I had sort of an overarching, I mean, you know, here was the thing. It's like I knew the mythology up to a point, either because I was too lazy or too scared. (laughs) Um, I, I didn't, I left parts of it a mystery because I realized that is part of what is unsaid and unknown is is what makes it so compelling. You know, when the audience can fill in the blanks or draw their own conclusions and, you know, that can be more compelling than spelling everything out. And, um, and, and you know, and, and, and fortunately, you know, the Weinsteins were really behind that. You know, they really... Um, and Scott and Larry got it too. I mean, it's just part of the problem you deal with as a genre writer doing studio movies um, is that, you know, executives a lot of times will say, oh, well, you know, you got to explain it because the audience will get lost and, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. And, and there's that sort of panic and you just realize, and, you know, and I've tried to explain it a hundred times. It's like, look, the audience doesn't go to the movies to get their questions answered, you know, it's, it's not the right. answer that's compelling. It's the question, you know, right. and, and that to me was, you know, sort of central. So for example, you know, was the dolphin built on a, you know, a, an Indian burial ground? Is that why it's there? Did I ever figure that part out? No, I made allusions to the fact that there may be other entr- There may be other rooms in other places, not necessarily all hotel rooms, but, but that this was sort of a nexus place. This that that the room was a nexus place where many people in desperation come to. And um, yeah, that was my sort of big controlling idea. Hmm, that's really cool. 
All right. So you you write fourteen oh eight, and then at mm-hmm. what point does the Pet Cemetery project come across your desk? <laughs> uh, well, no, that's and that's actually uh, that was the follow up after I did fourteen oh eight. You know, I did a bunch of other stuff, and then. I get another call from Lorenzo a couple of years later, and he said, uh, "Pet Cemetery," and I was like, "I'm in." <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, it's just like that one was a little bit more of um, a I don't want to say a sure thing. It was it, it was it you know with 1408, it was a story nobody had done it before. You know, it wasn't set up anywhere, you know, whereas Pet Cemetery, you know, look, that's a that's a major early King work. You know, there was a right. film in the 80s. Recognizable that, name. That, and... Yeah, recognizable name. It was set up at Paramount. There had been a previous draft, which I never read, by another writer and who is a good writer. And, um, you know, I had read, I never talked to him about it. And that had been for a previous administration at Paramount. So when they brought me in, it was essentially, okay, we just want to start afresh. What would you do? And, you know, I said, you know, look, and getting back to my point earlier about the two kind of Stephen King stories, you know, the, the one with catharsis and the one without pet cemetery to my mind is Stephen King's King Lear, you know, that just gets about as dark as it gets. (laughs) I mean, there's just, there, it's a dark concept a, just from the very a, outset. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. But it's also like, and I think I, I, I seem to remember. Well, you know, the story behind the, the the writing of the book was King was teaching that summer, and he had a house. He was renting a house right by a, a you know an interstate or something like that. And that scene where Gage runs out into the street and gets hit by the truck that almost happened to him. No. Did you know that? No. Oh, yeah, no. He remembers, he saw, and I think this was, I can't remember which which child this was. I think it was his oldest. You know, he's four years old, and he started running in that way that kids do. And Stephen King said, stop, stop, stop. And he could see that there was a truck coming. And he ran, he jumped, he grabbed him. And he doesn't know how it happened, but he, he tackled the kid before he could get to the thing. And everybody was, you know, all right. But that moment, you know, that was the proverbial splinter in his mind. What if I hadn't gotten to him? And he went into his, and I don't, I think he had planned to take the summer off and just, you know, teach for, you know, teach some summer course or something. But he just went to the woodshed and he wrote Pet Cemetery, Terry, and he gave it to his wife who reads all his first drafts. And right. she was like, wow, this is brilliant. Never write anything this again please <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh i i was very cognizant of that fact you know going in it was tough because structurally and i i i you know i rewatched the mary lambert film and the the you know i read you know K- stephen king wrote the original uh, or wrote the, the screenplay to that movie and king is a, a very adept uh screenwriter and you know one of the first things that sort of came out was Paramount didn't want the same structure that um, that King had in the original movie. They wanted something different. I mean, the the book and the movie are really arguably two acts, and um, they wanted something a little bit more three acty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had to uh, 
sort of dive in and development is always, you know, 50% creation and 50% negotiation. Hmm. You know, what, you know, it's coming up with stuff and then negotiating how much I can get away with. But even then, and I also thought, look, I was interested in doing Pet Cemetery, but it wasn't like, oh my God, we have to do Pet Cemetery again. They, they needed some convincing. Okay. You know, and I, I made the, the argument that I said, look, I, I think this is arguably a classic work. And um, they're asking, why remake something like this? It's like, well, look how many times Dracula got remade. Look how many times Frankenstein got remade. You know, I think the story is rich enough that you can approach it and tell the same story a different way, you know, mm-hmm. emphasizing different things. And that's what I did. I mean, I, I, I went in, you know, as with a lot of King's stuff, there's an embarrassment of riches. You know, there's so many great stories within the story, you know, but you've only got a hundred pages and um, you can only do so much. So, you know, it's like, what do you focus on? And I came up with something I was, I was pretty happy with, you know, the producers were were pretty happy with it. I can't remember. There were a couple of directors circling it. And then, you know, again, part of the thing is, is like, because the the original film, which was good, you know, it's like she did a a really good job. I think a lot of directors were sort of like, oh, do I really want to do this? And da, 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 da. Right, right. And then they ended up getting um, Juan Fresnadillo and he had his own take on it. And they brought in another guy and they they went in a different direction or I, I don't know. I mean, I've never read their script. So some of the stuff that I had was still in there. But yeah. And um, but then they never made their version no idea what's, either. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I hear rumors occasionally that, oh, it's, you know, it's alive again and they're going out to cast or this and that. But they ended up not making that version. So I think I don't know if Fresnadillo is still attached to it. I was told that they were looking at actors. Actually, it was weird. A friend of mine called me up and said, "Oh my God, my daughter is auditioning for Pet Cemetery," and I'm like, "You're kidding me!" <laughs> it's like I didn't know it was auditioning. You know? And I asked my agents, "Is like is Pet Cemetery going?" And they're like, "Well, you know, they don't know. They're still out. You know, to new directors." So I, I, I don't know. So many times in Hollywood, you know, once you are finished, you walk away and then years later you get a call. Often, sometimes you get a call. Oftentimes you don't. Oftentimes you just pick up the trades and it's like, oh, there's, right. <laughs> they're doing Pet cemetery. Well, that's a surprise. And of course, the first thing you think is, is like, well, are they using my script and am I going to get a credit? And, you know, calls to lawyers and agents and, you know, <laughs> blah, blah. Out of hand wringing. You know? <laughs> Did you speak to King during any of these previous situations? Because that seems like a big deal in both cases. In one case, you're adapting a short story and really coming up with the lion's share of it, and in the other case, you're you're reworking his screenplay. Yes. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I know, he, as far as I understand, he has kind of the final say on all of. The, the adaptations of his work. Someone, I think it was actually David yeah. Kep in an interview I was reading with David Kep is that he has like full authority if he wants to exercise it in, on any yeah. project. Um, yeah, yeah. We communicated somewhat through our representatives, but um, he does maintain, especially you know his his books. I mean, I think that um, he's a guy who is tremendously generous. You know, these stories you hear about, you know, letting people option. Yeah, I mean, he optioned grandma to me for a dollar, 
and oh, um, wow, really? You know, let us. Yeah, yeah, and he'll do that. I mean, I don't know if he'll do that as much now because I know like there's now going to be a TV series of his stuff and yeah. or of his. Um, I mean, there's tons of TV series, but specifically focusing on his short stories. Um, right. He is a genuinely my impression of him that I got just in secondhand interactions uh, and also just everything I know about the guy is that he is a, he is a good man who truly likes to foster talent. And I think that, you, you know, if you respect the material and um, play right by him, I think he's, he's, he's good about it. Does he read your scripts? Like, did he read the 1408 script and the, or the mercy script? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about Pet Cemetery, but I know he read 1408 and um, I was told he liked it a lot, you know, and he responded to Mercy. Um, I mean, he let us, I mean, here was the thing. It's like in order to get the green light with both of those things, we had to have his approval. Let's go into Mercy a little bit now. Um, mm-hmm. So so that was one of the infamous dollar baby options that they, that they talk about where King has yeah. agreed to grant rights to... Uh, you know, writers or filmmakers for a dollar, but then you have to go later mm-hmm. if it becomes a commercial project, I guess, and get additional approval beyond that. Or how did how did that work? And how did Mercy come about in general? Yeah, how it came about was this: fourteen oh eight had come out. You know, it, it it did well, and I was talking to another producer. You know, he said, "Do you want to do another Stephen King thing?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." And I said, "I always loved Grandma." And he's like, what's grandma? And I told him the story. It's like, great, let's go, let's go option it. And I was like, all right. And so we put out sealers to King and, and King said, yeah, sure. Cool. And um, I, uh, I, I worked with this uh, producer for a while on it. You know, unfortunately at the time, you know, we went out with it and um, we didn't get any takers. It was somewhat in the vein of 1408 in the sense that, you know, it was a very contained story. The main relationship, I mean, it's, you know, it's about this fucked up, relationship between a kid and his grandma you know yeah. and the reason i really responded to it um I, I was close to both my grandmothers but one of them in particular was um really really close with and she uh she contracted a number of ailments towards the end of her life including cancer and she was in quite a good deal of pain and oh, sorry. i i uh yeah no it's and i i watched her transform and, you know, this was a woman who was very spiritual and very loving. And that was my first inkling of how pain can destroy a spirit. And she did some things that were, well, let's just say they stayed with me. <laughs> um, and I was, I was really wounded by it. And then when I read Grandma, I had all these thoughts about it and... You know, it's a little bit different in Grandma because in in, this, in the King story because the kid isn't exactly as close. So one of the things that I did in my in the in the in the film was I tried to create a relationship where really the grandma was kind of the center of this kid's life. He was a lonely kid, and that you know I really kind of made Grandma more like my grandma. Right. Um, and of course, the most horrible thing to have happen is is the one the thing you love most turns into you know, something that is truly evil and f***ed up. It kind of sat on the table, on the shelf for a while. And then another friend of mine called me up years later and said, hey, you know, you know, what happened with Grandma? And I said, well, it's still sitting here. I don't think anybody else has 
gone to King about the rights or anything like that. And so she said, can I give it a shot? And so I, I talked to the other you know, producer and I said, can you, will you let this go? And he said, yeah. And there were a couple of people who started getting into it again. This was the person who ended up uh, bringing it to, uh, to Jason Blum and, and we set it up there and uh, yeah, it's one of those weird things. It's, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead, suddenly it's alive, and then we're doing it, and now we're, ah, that's not, you know. And, you know, and, and King had okayed the scripts, and he said, great, go ahead, you know, it's got my, my approval, and we went, we got a good cast, we got, you know, um, a lot of really good people in it. But, yeah, it just, uh, just did not mesh. There were, there were budget issues, and, you know, large parts of it were not filmed or, you know, they were filmed, but not, there wasn't enough coverage and, you know, it was, yeah, it's one of those things that happened. So yeah. it was, it, it was, it was consigned to the VOD, the land of VOD. So, <laughs> so what, I mean, what was that experience like? Cause it sounds like that was an extremely personal project for you. Uh, it's, it's probably yeah. difficult when that doesn't come together. Do you think like, man, I'd, I'd like to like try that one again or something. <laughs> I would, I would love to try it again. I mean, the thing is, is that as Scott Fitzgerald said in American Life, there's no second acts, you know, and in Hollywood, there's no second remakes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and actually, when you think of it, I didn't know it at the time, but it, but there had been an earlier version of Grandma done for, uh, I think, the Twilight Zone or one of the, the oh, Twilight Zone reboots. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I never saw it, but yeah, it was it was a personal, it was a very personal story and it was... It was a little heartbreaking that it didn't come together as well as it could have. I'll tell you, you know, it's very interesting. You know, some of the lines that I had written in the script were lines that I had, were interchanges I had had with my own grandma when she got gotten sick. Wow. And I watched Chandler uh, Riggs, who um, played the, the main kid on it. He's the kid on The Walking Dead, who is a phenomenally cool kid. Um, and a really, really good, dedicated actor. He was such a trooper because we were so up against it when it came to schedule and, and this. And But I watched him and saying these things, and, and I had this sort of weird... I, I started to shake at one point. I was on the set and I was watching him because it was like I was watching myself, and I had this weird, crazy flashback. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I thought... Wow, this is an expensive way to do therapy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was there. There you go. Um, but and it was funny because you know, just I mean, Chandler is a lot cooler than I was when I was <laughs> when I was his age. So it's always great when you've got like you know <laughs> a really cool surrogate, you know, yes. playing essentially yourself. <laughs> um, but. Um, Part of the art of being a screenwriter is, is the art of letting things go because you, unless you are also the director, you know, you have no control. And even sometimes if you are the director, you know, things happen that are out of your control. So that was a, that was a, uh, trying to find something poetic and it's a, <laughs> a poetic way to frame heartbreak, but you know, <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, there, there, there were some good things in it. And yeah. as I said, I think, you know, it wasn't for lack of talent. There was a lot of very talented people working on it. It was just, 
you know, for a number of reasons, things just didn't didn't completely gel. So there you go. So let me ask you this. What is your favorite Stephen King movie adaptation? That's a really, really good question. You know, look, I mean, <laughs> I'll take The Shining for 20, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't, in some ways, you just can't beat The Shining um, on one level because, you know, it's so masterful. But at the same time, it also wasn't, it wasn't the book. You know, look, I mean, Kubrick did, and, you know, the, there's been mountains of ink spilled about, about it. And I know king himself wasn't pleased with it and look i can understand it you know it was it was a very personal story to him and specifically you know the the issues with with jack nicholson's character and in the book there is more catharsis there is a there is a relatively i mean you know the guy dies but there is a sense that he has regained his humanity but not so much in the film but um (laughs) i would say you know the 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 works god this sounds really weird but it's always stuck with me and and, and not a, a lot of people cast shade on it i loved and it's not a movie per se it's a miniseries i still love uh mcgarris's version of the stand hmm. and i know it sounds weird a lot of people are like huh what Mick Garris's The Stand and also the second iteration of Salem's Lot. Um, the first one with David Soule didn't really do it for me. But they didn't have the budget. It was it was. But the second one, you know, with Rob Lowe, of all people, uh, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't think of Rob Lowe as being in a in a in a Stephen King story. But he 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 sort of got that character. It's like the essence of what it was, you know. I would dare say that Darabont's original script for The Mist was very compelling as well. I, they, they, they weren't able budget-wise to complete some of the things that he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so much of my hesitancy about naming a favorite film you know, <laughs> of King's is because I, 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 it's not the kind of thing where I'll, I'll go see the movie and then I'll read the book. It's like, no. I read the book. It's dear to me. I want the same feeling at the movie as I did. Yeah. (laughs) So if you catch the spirit of it, you know, and there again, that's why I like, that's why I like the stand is because I thought it caught the spirit of it. Hmm. Um, And the stand for me was always just such a wonderfully, you know, and again, I read it as a kid and, you know, I was swept away in it. So I, you know, there's a certain degree of nostalgia. And not to jinx anything, but uh, mm-hmm. is there any other King work that you would love to adapt? It could be something that would never happen, that, you know, like maybe they're never going to remake or whatever, but just if you could pick any King book to adapt into a film, what would it be? <laughs> Having just said I really like the version of Salem's Lot, uh, I do a Salem's Lot. I fucking love Salem's Lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, You know, that's... That's a really yeah. I would say Salem's Lot would be, you know, at the at the top of my list in terms of his books. You know, in terms of his short stories, I would kill to do the Long Walk. As I understand it, it's 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 it, it, King promised it to Frank Darabont, and 
you know, at some point, hopefully Darabont will do it because I think it's just, it's, it's to me one of his best stories. Uh, the name escapes me too many years and too many bottles of vodka. Um, it's Mrs. So-and-so's shortcut. I can't remember that again was a beautiful, romantic, supernatural fairy tale that I would just, I would, um, I would love to do Mrs. Todd's shortcut. That's it. Mrs. Todd's Mrs. Mrs. Todd's shortcut. And that's a lovely, lovely story. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I could safely say I would, I would jump at doing anything in night shift. I don't know if it would, if it would serve a, it would make a good film, but it certainly would be a nice short, um, is, uh, return to Jerusalem's lot. Yeah. Um, that's a beautiful coda to Salem's lot. Cool. So, Thank you so much, cool. Matt, for spending the time with us talking about Stephen King. We had a good time hearing all of your war yeah. stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, there are plenty of them. <laughs> Always a pleasure talking to you. I was just thinking, I could actually watch like several movies based on Mike Enslin as kind of like a ghost-busting uh, author. I would like, you know, I, I, it was those, <laughs> those opening scenes in the film where he's kind of going from hotel to hotel. I, I would, I would watch yeah. that as a series. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny because the producers had, uh, had talked about possibly doing a series, you know, I mean, we, we had, you know, chats here and there about it. Um, so one day you might get one. We'll see. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, dark tower. I think the Hollywood reporter or something said it's the second Stephen King Renaissance. You know, it's just the amount of stuff that's coming out that, oh, wow. you know, it's yeah. like, and look, you know, I mean, he is the infernal Charles Dickens of, of, of our times. You know? <laughs> All right. Well, I think that just about wraps up episode 125 of Horror Movie Podcast. We want to give special thanks for uh, Matt Greenberg for taking the time to talk with the Wolfman here. That was an excellent interview, Joshua. Thanks for doing that. You betcha. Excellent. Yep. So, um, thanks to Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So, guys, uh, this is our uh, Stephen King wrap-up for now. But again, um, in September, we're going to be going crazy on it. So, everybody get ready for that. But in the meantime, our next episode here, Friday After Next, is going to be a Frankensteinian episode once again. I love these babies. We've got some really fun stuff to talk about, so I hope people are going to join us for those. And if you're new to this show, the Frankensteinian episodes are we where we just discuss bunch of random whatever horror stuff we've been watching or whatever horror stuff we want to talk about it's it's just wild and wacky so make sure you're with us on that um josh do you want to tell them too i mean in case people want to hear a lot more info about the dark tower i know we 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 reviewed it on uh, movie podcast weekly and then they're reviewing it on geekcast live podcast as we said and then there's even a special features episode on the network right yeah, for our Patreon supporters, there's a four-plus-hour conversation between <laughs> Cartoon Joe from GeekCast Live, Matroid from the Sci-Fi Podcast, and We Deal in Lead, and a frequent guest on the show, and Tennessee Two Guns from We Deal in Lead. And they nice. talk about the book's... Uh, beginning to end and it takes them over four hours and I think that they're like doing some of it while they're driving and it's kind of a crazy experience but you know how those guys are but uh, but excellent content for those who are interested in the books you know I've, I've heard, already had heard some good feedback on it so mm-hmm. 
For just a $2.50 subscription, you get access to that episode and all of our previous special features episodes, which include the Cujo commentary, if you haven't heard that yet, as well as our top 10 posters list. We talked about that. We did uh, the anatomy of a kill. So we talk about the you know death in horror cinema mm-hmm. and a lot of other fun conversations, just bonus episodes that have been thrown up there for our, our Patreon supporters. Heck yeah. Yeah, so we thank you. And um, also, we just want to make sure people know we have a meetup where we're gathering in Salt Lake City, October 14th, 2017, and Dr. Shock will be there. Wolfman Josh will be there. Jay of the Dead will be there. We are trying to get uh, Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. We're going to try to get him to be there. And uh, and he's probably not gonna come. Let's just be honest. Yeah, let's let's be honest. Yeah, he lives what what is it like four hours away to um, where yeah. he lives. So but. there are people traveling much much further than him, but it'll be hard to get. Along. <laughs> That's true, but but we do have like many many of the other network hosts are actually going to be here. So we're we're excited about that. And we Gilman Joel is going to be there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'll be incredible. We hope you can all attend. Okay, uh, Dr. Shock, before we go, let the listeners know where they can uh, catch up with you. You can find me at dvdinfatuation.com. I'm finally double digits left to go now. Um, I think wow. after the post tomorrow, I'll have, uh, I'll have 95 more before I get wow. to the end here. Congratulations, Dave. <laughs> oh, Thanks. Hardcore. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. I, I'm um, snappy for you like, like you're at a poetry slam. Heck yeah. <laughs> just because I, I just because a round of applause would be very loud for our listeners, I would want to damage their ears. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Understood. No, I am. You can find me on Twitter at DVD Infatuation, uh, Facebook page as well. Um, I'm also on the uh, Universal Monsters cast with Wolfman Josh and Gilman Joel, um, the We Deal in Lead podcast, and uh, Land of the Creeps has just kicked back on we were able to do uh, an episode we did one a tribute to george romero we uh, everyone picked one film to discuss and uh so that seems to be back on track now so a lot of stuff going on but um i'm having fun oh that's excellent thank you what about you wolfman josh where can they catch up with you universal monsters cast movie streamcast and horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies <laughs> you can also find me on social media at icarus arts uh, i'm on twitter a lot instagram kind of a lot and facebook not so much but those are the three that i frequent at icarus arts mm-hmm. and i hope you'll check me out over at uh, movie podcast weekly where we review new stuff that's in theaters we also got our friends here. We already said a lot of them, but I just want to make sure we mention everybody on the network. Geekcast Live Podcast, don't forget that. And also um, Retro Movie Geek. And don't forget about the Sci-Fi Podcast. And also, um, I think we already said We Deal in Lead. And so I think that covers all eight shows now, but we hope everybody will check it out. We'd be grateful to have you join us. And we hope you leave some comments here in the show notes. I, I think these are going to be some pretty crazy comment boards on episodes 124 and 125. We're going to get a lot of feedback, I hope. And everybody give us your thoughts on the Stephen King movies. And please, as we said, if there are gems that we hadn't seen that are worth seeing, make sure you tell the community so everybody knows you got to see this film. Uh, from this episode, odds are that's the case. Yeah. 
Yeah, at least for me, anyway. I think I think you can count on one hand the number of ones of films I've seen from from this era. Same. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Let us know how those Children of the Corn films are. Yeah. Right. I I'm also especially interested a- in number nine. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a, a kind of a non sequitur special request for our listeners. Uh, there, I've been. Lo- I just rewatched The Burbs, which is one of my favorite movies, and I showed it to my kids for the first time, and they loved it. And you know, they said, oh, "I wish there were some special features." Uh, and I said, "I know. I'd love to see a documentary about this." And I, so I was kind of looking online, and I see, "Oh, Arrow Video released." Uh, uh, the burbs with a full-length commentary a full-length documentary deleted scenes but it was only available in the uk and i cannot find it anywhere it's not on amazon it's not on the arrow video website it's just it's gone so if anybody out there has access to the documentary there goes the neighborhood the making of the burbs and you can help me get a copy of that somehow i would be eternally grateful i just want to check that out mm-hmm. nice yeah, that sounds really good. All right, and uh, we also hope that you will email us if you wish at a horror movie podcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. We get some voicemails coming up in our uh, upcoming Frankensteinian episode. Also find um, all of our episodes, all 125 at horrormoviepodcast.com. So even if you can't find everything on iTunes, which you won't be able to, Our website has everything. We also have our archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis, where Dave and I fight quite a bit. Um, (laughs) You can can subscribe free in iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast. We're also on Instagram. And we want to thank our uh, musician friends, Fred Ingram, for the use of his music for our theme song. Fred's music is at frederickingram.com. We also thank Kagan Breitenbach, or his classical reworking of Fred's original theme, find his work at kaganbreitenbach.com. And guys, I think that's it. So uh, on behalf of Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock and Gilman Joel, right? Because we had a little bit of him on this episode. And even our, our friend Matt Greenberg, join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror